the talk. Mitchell, check your Discord. Right. <laughs> that is quite a bike. That's the Spruce Goose engine? No, that was one of their previous modifications, and I think that's a tank engine that they turned into a motorcycle. And yes, he actually rode it, and we're hanging out the side of a, a, a minivan trying to capture him. This was all pre... Uh, drones had just been introduced, but we didn't have one that would work. So we did if everything. If you were to lay that bike down, how many people it was, would it take to... It was, yeah, it was a horrible thing. So go ahead. And, can you show it? I don't have the ability to show it. Um, I cannot right now. Oh, okay. Sorry. Courtney. I sent it to Courtney too. But it's a... I saw it. But pretty, it's, it's got a pretty noisy soundtrack. Okay. Happy holidays to everybody. Post that link in the panel chats, man. Yeah, TJ, we just missed that snow. Came in the form of lots of rain. Well, we had uh, two days of rain and then two days of snow. So had it been raining or had it been snowing rather the entire time, we would have had like a foot and a half of snow or better here. Yeah, that's worse. Uh, snow then rain is worse than rain than snow. And then the bottom is going to drop out of the temperature this week. So you have a nice glaze on everything.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. First hour is general discussion about uh, media and virtual production. And the second hour is about something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about chat GPT. <laughs> a lot of us are talking about it. A lot of us are playing with it. Some of us are even cooking with it. <laughs> so we'll talk about that in the, uh, in the second hour. It's a lot of fun. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we got? First one in from Andy Carluccio in San Francisco, California. Zoom Rooms is getting a big update, including capture of four cameras at once, NDI and breakout rooms, and persistent outputs, which overhauled the ZR implementation to make it function more like Zoom ISO. The features are cross-platform. What are your thoughts? I go ahead, and Chris. I think cross-platform is probably going to make a lot of people excited. Um, I'm curious, and I wish Andy was here so I could ask him the question. Maybe somebody else here knows. He says, capture of four cameras at once. Does he mean like a back-end Zoom capture? Like if I hit, if I pick four people that I don't want to record, hit a button. This is something no. I've been asking for them. From them yeah, for I think there, there are some ISO outputs from that, but I believe that what that means is that if you wanted to have four cameras, and we'll have to test this to make sure that we that we get it right. But if you wanted to have uh, uh, four cameras going into your computer, you could have, right now it's three, I believe. So you could actually have three different um, windows nice. yeah. that are in there, which is really cool because if I want to take, uh, if I want to take four cameras, like we've had this problem where like, so for the cooking shows, for instance, you could, you know, Hasmuk could, instead of cutting the show, could simply just push four ca cameras into the show and and then we can sit there and cut it somewhere else with Zoom ISO. So being able to ingest more of those cameras at one time is is pretty interesting. And you know, and I think that the and again the as we start to move toward you know the the persistent outputs and so on and so forth make it a lot easier for people to plan and build. Um, you know, for that's the outputs from from the Zoom room. That was my next question. What what exactly is a persistent output? Well, so I believe I have to admit. I don't use Zoom Rooms very much because I have Zoom ISO. <laughs> right. So, so this is really, I mean, a lot of these things are for Zoom Rooms. It's also, they're also for people who are on PCs, you know, so, so if you have persistent. PC. Sorry to bug it and like this, but persistent would be that uh, that output is always available. So normally when you go into a Zoom Room with the controller, you have to say this, pin this person to this. But if you always have like the same people that you want to go out, it would just launch and those persistence would automatically be enabled so you don't have to sit there and configure and say oh, this person to this monitor this person to this monitor so and it's just probably it's two of the more stuff. two i mean you can correct me if i'm wrong guy but two of them two of the more popular ones would probably be like my screen share goes out to output four or you know out this output my sure. active speaker goes out to these and then i can and if i if it's the same people we're connecting to they go out to the same to those ones, yeah. Yeah, so you I think of it in a traditional uh, corporate environment where you always have the same people you're meeting with and you just want them on big displays. And so for an install, it makes total sense. It's just always yeah. there. Those folks are always popping and you don't have to touch anything. You know, once it's once it's set up, the the user just walks in and joins a meeting. You know, they don't have and to. The, and those, those persistent connections could also be other rooms, you know, so that you could be talking to, you know, these are the four room, you know, I'm going to, there's gonna be five rooms that are all tied together. And, um, but, but I think that in, as it relates to Zoom ISO, it's the ability to have, uh, yeah, to be able to set it up really quickly and easily and have it be the like, be able to save the state. So. I mean, um, the most popular thing out of this, I think for our crew is gonna be the, uh, 
the breakout rooms. We've been begging for it. I just, I, I, before I get too excited, I just, I got to test it because <laughs> I mean, it is a great gift. Thank you, Andy and crew for making this happen. We've been begging for over a year to have, uh, you know, cause the way that a, a lot of the shows work is that we'll have like hair and makeup in one room. Um, so you hit the lobby, just like in the show, you get pushed to a greeter, they greet you, they tech, you go to tech check, hair and makeup, basically you're walked through until you hit the stage one or stage two. And that way we could have people queued up. And so those breakout rooms, uh, it's, it's, it's been a thing where if we can't have them, we can't use uh, zoom rooms. So, uh, being able to not have to use hardware now in the cloud, this is going to be a big game changer for our crew. I, I don't know how everybody else uses zoom rooms, but this is the way that we use it. So there's going to be some excitement once we, uh, the 18th hits and we, uh, actually see it working yeah it's, so we'll yeah, go ahead chris it's really fascinating to me to watch how technology that gets invented for one thing like a breakout room all of a sudden it gets morphed into something else and it's surprising like how dependent we become on oh yeah an ancillary use of a of a uh, uh, available feature it's funny, you know, the, the funny thing about webinar, because we do the Michael Krasny show with with webinar um, as an experiment. I felt like I haven't been using it for a while since we stopped using it here. <laughs> so essentially, and um, without it just feels without having a breakout room, just lots of breakout rooms. It kind of feels crippling, you know, like you just can't you're like, I don't even know how I could do anything here because it's great to have backstage, but I need to be able to have exactly what Guy was talking about, which is that you know, we have the hair and makeup room and then we have the green room and then we have the prep room and then we have the tech, you know, tech issue room. And then we, you know, we, we oftentimes an average show for us might have six or seven breakout rooms that are just running in addition to it with all these little cavities of things that we're working on. And it, it feels, I always think of it as like the Emerald, I, we call it the Emerald City. Like we literally call it the Emerald City protocol, which is the, you know, like, you know, you know, where they go, they go, they get their hair fluffed and then they get the, you know, like when they go to Emerald City in, in Wizard of Oz, they go from station to station to station to station and get, get kind of prepped up so that they're ready to go see the Wizard of Oz. Chris is very confused. He, okay. You obviously haven't watched, the, you haven't watched the Wizard of Oz every year for your entire life, have you? Have you? No, no, I haven't. I have. <laughs> when I retire, I'm just going to do, uh, I'm just going to rebuild all the matte paintings in Wizard of Oz in 3D. Like, total real, because it's like, it drives just, me just crazy. Beware, beware of the flying monkeys. Yeah, and don't, I'm, I'm make sure you don't too. colorize the uh, open to it, okay? I'm not going to colorize the open. We represent the lollipop. This whole thing is devolved. It, all, it was all fine and dandy. <laughs> we were talking about Zoom, and then the whole thing devolved. But anyway, to get back to Zoom, uh, I, I think that I think these are huge updates. I, I will just keep saying that I I've worked with a lot of big corporations, and I've never seen any corporation, uh, any group in a corporation move this fast. Like you know, you know, for a large company to keep on implementing you know new features that actually matter. <laughs> like you know, like that's that's the thing is like they're actually um, every time the features come out, you, it's kind of I feel like the the zoom releases are getting close to the like the apple things where we want to see what's going to happen next because you know there's actually going to be something there for us not just some you know mealy mouth thing that somebody needed that no one will ever use kind of thing it's just real it's really amazing to watch the the team at at uh, at zoom putting this stuff together so i think next year is going to be pretty exciting next question from john snyder in reno nevada i stumbled across an old digital camera it had a full sd card but when i try to pull data from it 
it's corrupted. Specifically, the card unmounts itself shortly after plugging in. Is there any way to recover the data? Go TJ. What I would do is to verify that the data is actually corrupted or not, put the card back in the camera and see if you can see either the pictures or the video um, that is on the card. If you can actually see the pictures or video on the card on the camera, then um, I would try either a different computer, a different card reader. It may be formatted, let's say that Mac OS can't uh, recognize it or Windows can't recognize it. If it's a video camera, um, what you can do is take a look and see if your camera has a little video out thing. If it's old enough, like really old, like mine here, it may have a firewire or another video out that you can plug in and capture. Um, if you have an older, um, lesser model, sometimes uh, you can find on eBay the one or two step up from that model that has the video output that you can use and you can find it for like 30, 40 bucks. Yeah, go ahead, Sky. I was going to say that it oftentimes had prior, prior, proprietary uh, configurations. So maybe if it was a Sony, for instance, try to use uh, the software called Vegas, which was their specific thing. And they they had a particular way they had to, you know, decompress their files early days. So if it's a, if a video machine, it might have been proprietary. So it may not be corrupted. Yeah, and the other one that you want to look at that I've used in the past is Disk Drill. Disk Drill um, works on the Mac or PC, and uh, it it has saved SD. For me, it hasn't been corrupted cards. It saved things that I deleted by accident. When you capture six cameras at a time and you have to load them all, <laughs> load them all out, and you accidentally throw them throw the wrong ones away, and then you go. The the main thing, by the way, if you ever do that, is never write it again. Don't put it back in the computer. Put it right into a recovery because. It's just been marked as gone. It's not actually gone. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, to Sky's point, maybe Catalyst, the Sony program, could see it and uh, fix it. Go ahead, Bill. And just a word of warning, the data recovery industry has classically been a very uh, questionable industry. If you're going to use some third-party data recovery tool, be very careful. Make sure you write down exactly what it is and you have a path to get it off of your hard drive once you put it in there because they tend to do these stealth subscription things and you'll just try to get your data recovered. It'll sit there and it'll start charging you and just be yeah. careful. Yeah, don't, uh, don't do anything. No data recovery for free. Nothing is for free and data right. recovery is definitely not. <laughs> so you want to be paying 50, 100 bucks or something like that for the recovery. If there's anything that says we do it for free, you're in trouble. Uh, next question. Todd Perry from Prescott, Arizona. Any suggestions for best quick setup mic and speaker combo that can bring multiple people, just audio, into a Zoom meeting in the same room running off just one computer for impromptu situations that commonly pop up in the office? Go ahead, Javier. Uh, what I've done is use an interface that has enough inputs and let the, especially like a sound devices with mix assist helps you a lot with this situation, especially if there's no one to operate, the, like to can mute and unmute. Uh, have a dynamic mic for every people or for every person, sorry, or for every two people. If if it's more, uh, if there's more people than microphones, you're going to have to pass it around. It's not a good experience. And, uh, and try to, uh, for speakers, what I've done is use a headphone distribution system, like get the output from the computer into the system and then they can use their even their airpods or the a, a like iphone um headphones because having open speakers and a bunch of mics is not a good idea even with mix assist uh but that's the way that i have done it and it kind of works with no one else operating 
Yeah, the big thing with the mics, if they're all in the same room, is to use a mic typically that has a lot of high off-axis rejection. So if it's, it can be a small condenser mic, but it can also be SM58s. I mean, that's what we used to carry around is just a bag of, of SM58s. You have like four or five of them and you just pull them out and connect them to some simple little mixer and, uh, and, then, and then put them together. That, that seems to work pretty well. There used to be a company called Octopus that made one that you put a whole bunch of mics into and had a USB out and it would do all the mix, it would do the mix minus, it would also do something that was kind of like a Dugan auto mix between the mics. Um, but I think that they got bought by a larger company, but you could, a simple mixer oftentimes will, will work there as well. Now, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asked, Zoom ISO help, permission denied if recording is stopped, meeting set to local record option, record option, and Zoom ISO is co-host. Hang up, redial Zoom ISO does not help. Suggestions and thanks. It's denied for a co-host. The meeting is, let's see, Zoom ISO permission denied if recording is stopped. I wonder if that's if someone hits stop. Like, so if someone says, I don't want to, if, if someone in the meeting says, I don't want to be recorded and they're in the meeting, I think that it may not let you be interesting. I don't know if it'll let you use Zoom ISO. So if anybody coming into it says no, I think that might be what, what could be happening. If someone's denying access to recording their like, and then, then it would put it into a stat state. I don't know that for sure, but that'd be my guess. Uh, next question. Next question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you make a YouTube clip out of any YouTube video? TJ. My advice would be to actually not do that. Uh, I would, since YouTube clips are a different vertical format opposed to horizontal format, I would do um, exclusive content for your YouTube clips. Most people who I have seen convert their regular YouTube videos to clips. The framing is bad. They it just doesn't look right um, because they're shooting for horizontal video for the regular YouTube clip. So my advice would be... Are you talking about YouTube specific. clips or shorts? Mm. I think you, you might be talking about yeah, shorts. I think, I think maybe, he's just trying maybe. to clip it. Ah, <laughs> he's just okay. trying to clip the file. Okay. Um, yeah, go, go ahead, Sky. Well, if you're needing to download a YouTube so that you can re-modify it, to your point of you know vertical versus horizontal, that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, Downey 4 which I put into the, uh, the the links there, is is pretty bulletproof of downloading a clip. And then, of course, you would need to edit it in whatever nonlinear editing software of your choice. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. There actually is a new feature in YouTube. It's a button called Clip. And it appears underneath the viewer. You press that button. And you can pick a section of an existing video, um, clip it, and I believe you can then um, associate it as one of your videos, uh, like on your YouTube stream. So you've actually just pulled an excerpt from something else and said, wow, you got to watch this great scene or this great cat video, whatever. That might be what Paul's talking about. If you're, if you're talking about downloading it, I mean, that might be what ta Paul's talking about. Just be super careful of, um, you know, it's not your video. So, so even though you can, you know, we can, I pull things down, when a client asks like, hey, can you, or I might use it for personal use, like I just want to put this in a file that I'm, that I'm using for reference. And so I'll use something like Downey to pull it down. Um, but I will never, never pull someone, uh, pull it down unless I'm going to talk about it, like a fair use of like, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to do like a teardown like I've done in the past. 
you know, if, if I'm going to use it and talk about a specific thing, I might grab that. But usually even then I'm grabbing screen captures of it. Um, but the, uh, but I would be very careful. The YouTube YouTubers do not appreciate it. <laughs> just, 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 in case, just in case you're wondering if, if, if someone's putting something up there then you download the clip and make it part of a larger clip, um, you're not making any friends and you can make legal enemies. Um, there's definitely some folks that will do more than just give you a YouTube strike. They'll, they'll come after you for it. So, um, so you just want to really think through downloading other people's uh, content off of, off of YouTube. They, they make money on advertising. They take it pretty personally when you start copying stuff from theirs and putting it on some, something else. Uh, next question. From L. Wilson Spiro in Berlin, I'm using a mocap suit to control video playback with different gestures. I want to emulate VCR playback. Where can I find the different rates at which VCRs would fast forward rewind tapes? For example, stop plus rewind equals faster than just pressing rewind. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, it's a little bit complex because uh, most VCRs end the rewind, which means it unloaded the tape off of the head, um, is based on the diameter of the tape on the uh, feed spindle. So it runs faster if there's a small amount, small diameter of tape, or if you're at the end of the tape. I mean, it runs slower if you're at the end of the tape and faster if you're at the beginning of the tape. So the rewind speed varies depending upon the amount of tape you've uh, gone through on the cassette. If it's engaged with the head, some um, some VCRs like the Panasonic 8600, I think, that had dynamic tracking could give you uh, two to four times forward and reverse with picture. Um, but that's about it. Uh, it couldn't track much faster than that in forward or reverse and give you a stable picture out of it. But uh, that's all I know. You good, Bill. Yeah, what Courtney said, I think it's entirely dependent on manufacturer and it had to do with what kind of motors they put in there. The more sophisticated VCRs had a, a little control in there. And when you got so much left, it's it stepped mm -hmm. down the speed. So it always seemed variable to me, usually fixed fast forward and rewind. It would be an unusual machine with unusual controls that would have any kind of variability in that rewind or fast forward uh, mode. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. On this episode of peak useless information. Now, um, I, <laughs> remembering how VCRs work, uh, Courtney was right. Stop plus rewind, you wouldn't see it at all because it literally disengages the thing from the head. Uh, L, I would just go look at, a, I, just start searching YouTube. There is a YouTuber that I saw recently that uses like a whole bunch of old VHS kind of overlay effects, uh, but I'm sure you can find some examples. This guy. Yeah, that's what I was going to recommend. There are bad TV plugins for your non-later editing software and or after I don't think effects. he's looking for the effect. I think he's just trying to figure out how fast would it go. And I would probably say two or four. Per, I would have it be like two times or four times. It will never show, as I said, as stated before, it would never show more than four times against the head. So, Would you ever um, do it analog? Would you just plug into a tape machine and, and try to record the screen? Because that's... Rather than I think to... he's he's just trying to have it like he's got a motion capture suit. He wants to do this: go fast, go faster, rewind. It's it's he he wants gestures. It's to to emulate it. Alex, uh, I think you're right. Trying... I think it was just two X, then two X again. I I remember yeah, that on yeah. a lot of machines. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, two X and four X. And remember, if you're trying to play back uh, anything that's other than uh, you know uh, uh, intra frame compression, you know, like ProRes. Uh, you're not going to be able to rewind with picture 
uh, yeah. at least very accurately. If it's yeah. H.264 going backwards is a lot of thing. Next question. Next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. To use Zoom ISO Pro at 1080p with high bandwidth mode, what type of Zoom account would one need to get and what is the price? A good guy. Pretty sure that you're going to be looking at a business account and not just one, but 10 of them. So to get to the dashboard and, and ask for 1080p and ask for uh, support to enable high bandwidth mode, you're going to need 10. So uh, the pricing on that looks like it's $19.99 a month. So 20 bucks rounded up a year. Actually, if you go for a year, you can do build annually, which would give you uh, 200 bucks. So 200 times 10, you're looking at two grand. So that's the official answer. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, once in a once in a while, they do offer a five uh, seat uh, requirement. So look for that when it happens. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know whether Zoom ISO will would. Um, I thought for some reason it would allow you to once you pay, you're paying for a Zoom ISO, but I don't I don't know if that gets you 10 and AP on the on one on the account that has that. It's an interesting problem. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there. You may be able to. I would definitely. You do need a business license, I believe. Um, I would definitely call Zoom <laughs> support or say, I'm really interested in getting a business license. I don't want, I don't need 10. I need three, five, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you, I would at least make, make the effort. Um, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, ESPN made an early push into remote production with their live from home initiative, but talked about going back to site as soon as it became possible, what will it take technically and organizationally to make decentralized models the default? Go ahead, Sky. Money. Yeah, it's it, the, the here's the problem really is late latency and the stability of the video to the house. So this gets back into what I often talk about, which is the 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 issue of um, uh, fiber to the house. If everybody had fiber to the home, <laughs> we, we wouldn't have this conversation because you'd be able to watch a lot of this stuff, um, you know, pretty pretty easily. But uh, the problem you get into is that, you know, let's say you're an EVS operator, you have to be able, you know, an EVS operator does the slow motion for, for, for ESPN. You could be at home except for the fact, and you could even run the EVS somewhere else, but you have to be able to see that video in real time and how quickly can you see it and how stable is it? And if it's going to come to any of your EVSs at your house, then how do you do that? And then same thing with the cameras. Now, the reality is for sports coverage, um, Pac, is it Pac-12? Pac-12 has, um, uh, they've refined this to a, an art. So they do 22, I think, it, I, I wanna say 2,200 um, games a, a year out of San Francisco. And they have a San Francisco office, it's at like Howard and fifth or fourth or whatever. And, um, uh, they do 2,200 shows there, but all they do is they pull these little specialized trucks up to uh, an arena and they run fiber out of there, uh, triax out of there. They put the cameras up. Sometimes the commentators are local. Sometimes they're not local. They're looking at it over other things. And they, so all those cameras come back, all the graphics, all the replays, everything all happened in San Francisco. And all the cameras are on, you know, it's just camera feeds that are coming back. And again, some of the commentators like to be there, so they get to go or they, they go or if they have the budget and the, and the, um, but they don't have to, they could just sit there and watch it. But the sound, the audio engineering, everything is all happening remotely. Now that's over internet too. Um, so that's, 
very stable connections, <laughs> and that's usually backed up by the switch. So, so that's that's that solves that problem, and you know that that type of thing has been done for a decade, oh, well over a decade, by Pac-12. Um, go ahead, Chris. So, Alex, I'm going to challenge you. Uh, this is something that you have talked about uh, a lot for the last two and a half years. I want to challenge you just one hour a week. One hour a week. I want you to work on your poll access primer video. I think educating the yeah. world about the poll access problem and then those people uh, uh, getting right. vocal with their representatives, maybe yep. we could make a change. Yeah, um, I'm gonna. Uh, uh, I we're gonna br we're gonna bring in the new year. We're bring Lauren Salzgiver in. He owns an ISP, a very small ISP in in Pennsylvania. And that's where I, that's where I came in on a Sunday a couple of times ago, and he can talk to it in detail. <laughs> you know, I don't know how much he'll detail. He'll I think he's willing to talk about anything he wants to talk about, but he can talk about it and about why it works because we we had a conversation about it, and one of the things that he brought up was it's not just poll access. It's how much they're going to charge you per poll, and they'll inflate those things, and they'll make stuff up. And there's just a lot of, but really understanding that model is super, super important because you're absolutely right that, um, you know, in the end, we just have to really be thinking about glass to the house. And if you're listening to this in a rural area or a less, less, um, you know, populated area in the United States, um, that it really matters to you more than everybody else because it means that people could move from where they are now to a less ex less expensive place. They just can't do that right now because they don't have enough bandwidth. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. You may have already partially answered this, Alex, but the question is when ESPN rolls a truck up to a stadium like this, is it least fiber or do they actually put it on the internet and go through multiple hops and yeah, unknown that, connections or yeah, is it so, tunneling VPN or something? Uh, typically it's things like the switch. So the switch is the probably the most, um, when they're going to it, so all the, all the, and, and that's least fiber. I mean, it's it's a um, you know. So basically, the it's it's a it's not even the internet <laughs> at that point. It's you know, and so it's in the switches loop. And and I think uh, Linda has been on from the switch at one point in time. But we might want to bring them on just to talk about the switch. I think we were talking about backhauls in general, but it'd be fun for for us to talk about it in specifically. But they have a private network, very low latency, highly managed, and you can take. In the simplest form, you take one in, one out, or one out of of video. But a lot of times, you can do put drop what's called a NIMBRA. Net Insight makes this NIMBRA, and you can throw eight cameras in there <laughs> if you wanted to, if you have enough bandwidth. And you know, and so, but it's capable of uh, uncompressed. If you want, you can get uncompressed video from the site, you know, out as you know, as, and it's just as, as much bandwidth as that site has. And that can be in 4K, it can be in 1080p, it can be in you know, 1.5, 3, you know, 12, you know, all those things are possible coming out of that, um, out of that system. And so that's a lot of what they're using is, are things like the switch, but it's definitely not open internet. And it's definitely, you know, and, and so that those are the, I mean, Lumen, which used to be level three, which is also uh, Vivix, um, had that market for a little while, but they weren't, they weren't very flexible and they still own a couple spaces where you have to use Vivix to get out of the building like Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Convention Center or whatever. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter. Um, anyway, so the, uh, but but most of the time, almost every major arena and stadium has the switch built into it um, at this point. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I've uh, talked to people that shoot for NFL films and uh, ESPN does a, a similar thing. They centralized all of their graphics to Englewood and I think they're also switching either there or in L.A. So a lot less is being done with the the big trucks from NEP. 
for the smaller shows, they for the smaller game games they do that. But for, I mean, I don't. I think an NFL game is usually like I'm, I mean I, I don't know for sure, but I think it's like eight to fourteen trucks that are still showing up for an NFL game. Um, and so the the work is all still being done on site for for those things. Uh, ESPN may be doing that for smaller sports. That's what really where the Remy and a lot of those things happen are the smaller sports um, is where they kind of go down that path because it's um, it's cheaper. Um, yeah, but, they but they the, still have yeah they still have to shoot it. Obviously, that's why they have the trucks and they color the uh, the cameras from the trucks also. But you're right. Less, yeah, I, I less think that they're still cutting. I think most of it's still happening there. The inserts and the in-betweens and going to commercial and everything else happened somewhere else. But I'm pretty sure that, and there's some network level stuff that gets added later. But I'm pretty sure that most of the show still happens on site for most of the major, for an NFL game. Most of it, I would I would wager <laughs> that most of it's still happening on site. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, if you read the uh, S the sports video um, article on the Thursday Night Football, they talk about the uh, connection, and this is Amazon Prime, and so I got to go on site and witness this. It's a hundred gigabit connection. So it think about that for a second. This is the internet at a hundred gigabit. So up in the cloud, we're able to get uh, machines. If we do what's called a a bare metal, we can get a hundred gigabit machine. But typically, we're allocated twenty five gigabit, which is still really fast, and that's connected um, uh, inside our, our VPC, so like peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, but you can also go site-to-site -site at those speeds, and that's what they're doing. So they blast those signals uh, for submixes, so the, the stream will go to like Spanish or something like that, but that's handled in, in Texas. So all those streams are shooting out uh, at that kind of bandwidth. As to the original question, if people are going back on uh, from that production, uh, in particular, it seemed very, very 190 crew uh, travel with the show. So that's a, that's a lot of butts and seats and a lot of travel and a lot of uh, infrastructure. But when I uh, talk to people like uh, Tonus, uh, uh, Jonas and Tucker, you know, Jonas is in Germany, Tucker's in Oklahoma, but they, they can have redundancy on shows where they'll have TDs where uh, they're running Parsec and on comms, you just hear, hey, you have control, you know, so it's basically you get as much redundancy you can, double internet, double power, uh, but the, that comes at a cost, but then double operators. So if things fail, it's just, all right, hands off, next person takes over. So we've had folks on Tony Mobley's show from uh, uh, Trinidad, and I've I've listened and watched these guys just, all right, hands off, you got it, okay. I'm, I'm, and, and also Cherry runs the American Heart Association um, lives, and they're still bouncing back and forth, same type of operation, three people all can get the show at the same time, but it's the mouse if you touch the mouse while somebody else is touching the mouse, it's going to take over. So it just depends on how you're logged in and uh, what that comms workflow is to say who has control. And then, but the live feeds are the, the interesting thing, you know, like how with Zoom, especially with this new announcement, four cameras, think about that for a minute. You go to a venue, you could suck four cameras into Zoom and you're cutting. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the sheer number of cameras that are even at 10, at a hundred gigs, you know, the sheer number of cameras and at full resolution and everything else is probably why it's also a lot of it. It's, it's definitely spread out and you can definitely do a lot of those things for the NFL, you know, but it's a, you know, each, each game, when you calculate the sal salaries involved with the players and everything else, each game is a $50 million operation. And so, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're still going to do it the old way for quite some time <laughs> because it's because they figured out how to make that work. Um, but, but I think that you are seeing um, COVID de definitely change the structure to some degree where more and more things are like, do that service really need to be local? And they're experimenting with things that are like a little lower level 
but it is spread out. You know, I, I was talking to an EBS operator um, that, uh, you know, she's like, oh, I do records, but she does them out of LA no matter where it is, right? It's coming to like all the things come back to her from the show, you know, and uh, and uh, she, she's managing records on an EBS. She's not doing replays, but that's, you know, so the game's happening in one place. Some graphics are being added in, in the East Coast. Some things are being recorded in the West Coast and all of that spread out has happened uh, over the COVID, you know, where they realized that out of necessity, they had to do stuff. And we'll see, I think that continue to progress over the next decade. The stuff that's done in the cloud right now just doesn't move as fast as football. <laughs> you know, like it's, so, it, and it doesn't have as many cameras. And so it's a little easier to kind of manage. Um, and it doesn't have the same budget that's involved in the same amount of advertisers paying for it. Um, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, any thoughts on the new Comica CVN LinkFlex 85 Denoise budget noise assist? Uh, go ahead, Javier. I haven't used it myself, but I was looking into it for the for the show, and uh, in everything that I found, uh, the noise assist sounds super aggressive. It looks like it has like a gate, like a very aggressive gate uh, added to it, so it cuts off the the words like the beginning and the left part of the words, especially if you are not speaking like hard. And it has like this breathing uh, effect, like the well, that when the gate right. comes in and comes out, and that's like super distracting. Yeah, I don't think that what they're doing is noise assist. I think what they're doing is gating. Yeah, it's um, a denoising kind but of. But when they say denoising, they just mean they're they're gating it. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so I I would use the that that budget for a different mic selection or for acoustic treatment. But I, I when something has to be subtle, uh, it's not gonna be cheap. Yeah. And noise assist has to be subtle. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, what has been said here, when I looked at it, the thing that surprised me most is they have a switchable two levels of noise reduction, one for dynamic mics and one for condenser mics. I don't know any professional equipment's ever used that kind of scheme on that. So I would be wary of that. The other thing is that it's a battery powered unit that claims five hours. It also claims that you can switch in uh, 48 volt phantom power. And in my experience, anything that combines battery power and phantom power is going to get a whole lot less battery life than you would expect. So if you're going to do a quick show, maybe. And hey, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yeah. Anything you use on a mic that has the word gate in it is not good because it tends to chop things off. Uh, as Javier was saying, um, an expander would be a better thing because it's much more subtle and smooth. It's like somebody riding the gain instead of chopping it up and down. Yep. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. And if you're talking about feeding Zoom, uh, original, the uh, noise reduction built into Zoom is quite good. But the trick to that is make sure that you're uh, using the mute in Zoom and not an external mute. Because what uh, the way it works is it listens to your microphone and audio channel when you're not speaking. Uh, and if you mute it before it gets to your, uh, you know, mute it in hardware before it gets to Zoom, then uh, it can't uh, it can't develop a model to use for its noise reduction. Here's what my sound like with it turned off. This is with the noise reduction turned off. And this is with the noise reduction turned on in Zoom. And yeah, Zoom is pretty good. <laughs> Next question. Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California, and here in our panel. After my question the other day about compression times on the Mac Studio Ultra, my friend showed me a new encoding app. Ever heard of Shutter Encoder? Uh, go ahead, Chris. So Jeff Greenberg, um, I was having this discussion with him yesterday. To, to recap, um, the compression times on my iMac Pro, which is like five years old, uh, were actually slightly better, and in some cases quite a bit better than what I was getting on the Mac Studio Ultra. It didn't make any sense. I really think that it is an issue with compressor not, not being fully optimized for that. 
Greenberg pointed me to this app called um, Shutter Encoder. I'd never heard of it. It's a GUI for FFmpeg. Um, super cool. Tons of features. You can do um, rewrapping and audio replace. Uh, t- tons of stuff. This is about 15 minutes, 12 or 15 minutes worth of material. There's a couple things you need to know about it. Command S saves a preset once you've done it. This little star opens up your preset. So you go like this and you say, start start the batch. And it is just wicked, wicked fast. This, uh, this particular video it's doing is probably uh, three and a half, 345. And it is almost done uh, compressing and it'll do the whole batch the same way. Um, it has... Other features buried under here under advanced features where you can turn on hardware acceleration. You can, you know, convert frame. I mean, it has all the most advanced stuff that you'd want in a great compression utility. And uh, I had literally never heard of it. It's great having friends like like uh, Greenberg. Anyway, this 15 minutes worth of videos is almost done compressing. And it took... Uh, uh, the the Mac Studio Ultra, same hardware, in um, uh, compressor. This was taking um, a, an unbelievable amount of time. Like it was something's clearly wrong. But this thing is literally done now. Process complete. Question about that? Yeah, that last question. The, the question that you had around the iMac versus the Studio. We're you using the same operating system between the yes, two. Yes, sir. Everything is identical. So the compressor version, everything same else. OS, same compression version, same hard drive, same cable, same patch, same compressor settings, wildly different. Like it, it, the difference between the speed of the iMac and the speed of the Ultra was so drastic that you would really hope that they had been opposite. <laughs> Like yeah. if, if the iMac had done it as fast as the Ultra and the Ultra did it as fast as the iMac, I'd go, wow, this was a great purchase. And you copied the, you you didn't just use it, but you copied the compression setting from one to the other. Yes, I did. Because yeah, it was, I, I'm telling I mean, you. Because there, there's identical. a lot of things that the compressor does that, that I turn off to make it go faster. And so like I like, you know, two pass for the most part, I get rid of um, because I'm usually two, when I'm in a rush. If I care pass, about something. I two passes. Buried into the setting, so it's the same setting. Right. It, it was on on both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but the point of this comment is check out this shutter encoder. It's super cool, right? But when things are a lot faster, usually I go, well, it's not pro- it's not doing some part of the process the compressor is doing. <laughs> like it's 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 skipping something to get there, and that could be scaling. That could be. It, I will say that um, I I I've played with shutter. It's it's, it's really cool. I I still. Um, I found that the same compression with the stuff that I was compressing anyway, I felt it looked better coming out of compressor than it did out of shutter. And I felt like it was, it was, I couldn't quite find the dials in shutter to get it to look as good as compressor at the same size. Yeah, that, so, that, that, that's super interesting and, and very possible. I haven't looked at it super critically yet. Mm-hmm. I'll also say uh, to some of the people that remember um, QuickTime Pro, you know, QuickTime 7 mm-hmm. Pro, and some of the features that we lost with that, the ability to swap out an audio track, all of that, it, it, it this feels very much like it has some of the same features that mm-hmm. the old QuickTime Pro. And, and if you don't 
know what that is, and this doesn't, yeah. this comment means so. But, but take, you know, we should build a, I had a file that I was using for that, <clears throat> had a lot of high motion, it had gradients, it had, it had a couple different things that I needed to see, and then I ran it through the compression, and I ran it through handbrake and shutter and me, Adobe Media Composer, Composer and Compressor, and a media, comp media, media encoder and compressor both looked the best, at least in, you know, coming out of the gate. Uh, but compressor was like three times faster on the Mac than media encoder. So, so yeah. it was, you know, so that, so that's how I kind of stuck with compressor. And there's, once you know it, there's a, so many tools that are kind of hidden deep into that different scaling tools, different reframing tools and everything else that have a lot that are pretty interesting and will greatly affect your render. Yeah, Bill, real quick. I just real quick, I, Chris, when you were doing that, did you pop open activity monitor to see if there was some other subroutine that was getting in the way of that second compression? It just yeah, seems like such a weird anomaly. It's yeah. it's super weird. I'd love to talk to somebody at Apple and have them, have them tell me how stupid I am and tell me how to fix no, it. No, I don't but, think you're stupid. You saw you saw something. That's what I'm trying to yeah. figure out is what was it that was causing that huge difference? And maybe discount. some activity monitor notable thing was happening every cycle. Yeah. Don't discount my personal stupidity. It's formidable. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I'm going to, because next, next it's not there. Next question. Next question in from Gilberto Ispichi from Santa Cruz, Bolivia. How do you identify grounding issues on an event, and what are good practices to know? Good, Courtney. What I like to do is always power everything in the audio channel from the same source of power. In other words, you know, find a plug that works, and as long as it can service enough amps, uh, distribute everything to all of your peripheral equipment from the same source. Run a run your own AC cords. If you plug something in on one side of the building and something else in on the other side of the building, you risk it being on different transformers and having different ground planes, and you risk having a ground loop. Uh, running between the two. One thing I also carry with me is one of the ground lifters, you know, a three to two plug adapter that has the ground pin lifted or on a separate little wire. Plug that in uh, sequentially from one, one at one end or the other end of one of the pieces of equipment one at a time, and you might discover where your ground loop is coming from by lifting the ground, but it's always dangerous. Mitchell, Mitchell. Yeah, never, ever, ever use one of those ground uh, eliminators. <laughs> Very we bad. Use all time. So, it, it, so the ground lifting the ground is not a big deal when you're doing it with low amperage. So it's not, you know, like it, it is a way to get rid of it. So if you're dealing with two amps or five amps or whatever, it's not a big deal. Where it gets into trouble is when you're doing it full, like at the end of one of those things where you're pushing a lot of watts. But, but I don't. I wouldn't worry about it too much. You know, it's really. I think I know this will sound crazy, but I think that there's a second hour somewhere. I'm doing a lot of research on this for another reason, but. Um, it was funny, I was talking to an, a, someone, an electrical engineer about it because I'm studying, uh, my, my, my father's a lawyer and it turns out stray voltage kills cows. <laughs> and when, you, when you're in Pennsylvania, you start paying attention to the fact that how many cows are getting killed by stray voltage. Anyway, so what we call a ground loop is stray voltage. It's that the electrons are trying to find home, you know, and they're trying to, and they're trying to, and they're using whatever they can to get there. And so it's a really, I, and as I've dug into it, the, you know, realizing that our ground, our, what we call ground loop and stray voltage in, in, in a dairy farm are the same, except that the, the thing that's connecting the circuit is the cow. Anyway, so the, um, but the, but anyway, but so as I research this, it becomes like a really, it's a really fascinating, I think it's a great question. And I think that we need to, um, I think that we need to understand like as, as, we need to understand electricity a lot better. 
you know, uh, you know, of how it works and, and where it goes, because I thought I knew it. And then as I started studying it, it just becomes like this gooey thing that I keep on falling. You know, like it's not, the electrons aren't really flowing. They're bumping and they're, they're, they're doing this stuff. And I think that us understanding what that looks like is important. I'm spending like an hour a day watching videos about straight voltage. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, next question. Next question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you use the Video Follows audio feature of MixEffect Pro? And how would you use this in a Zoom meeting? Good, Tom. Well, that's exactly what I did a few shows ago. In MixFX Pro, you have a screen that allows you to set all the audio levels, and you see an AFV on each input. And when we were talking about the uh, Pong game the other day, I played it into the show and made sure that I ducked the audio down to an acceptable level and just did it like that. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 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 audio follows video, of course, or video video follows audio. Is it no, video follows audio follows video? <laughs> okay, okay. Because um, video follows audio would be really cool. That well, be... that's in Paul's question though. He said specifically video follows audio. I know feature I don't on Mix Effects Pro. Maybe just got it wrong. But there's um, not that feature. <laughs> boy, that are we sure there's not that feature? Uh, sure. Let's never check seen that. that. Out. I haven't seen it, but video follows audio. That. That'd be a Dugan mix for video, like switching. And there are some software that does that, that will switch. Basically, it will switch the video based on audio levels so that if you have a round table, it'll just cut to the right camera when people are talking. No one has to cut anything. Tom, on the so, shot of the unit, wasn't it VFA as yeah. the the silk yeah, screen on the front? So we'll have to research that a little bit more. But that's it, a really it's cool. it's AFE. Okay, AFE. So that would okay. be audio follows video. So you're yeah. safe there. That means that when you're cutting to a certain video source, you, you're getting that audio. So the audio is coming with that video source. So if you you know if you want to, where that's really useful for me is if I playback and audio follows video, I hit play and it's automatically going to cut to that. You know, it's going to cut and I know that the audio is coming with it. I don't have to mix it up. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, there's a product from Roland, a couple of them now that have this feature built in video follows audio. And we used it at a town hall where they said they were going to read uh, the Mueller report for 24 hours. And this was a volunteer position. So I just came in and set up a video follows audio on this uh, on this uh, uh, Roland. I don't remember the model number, but basically it just sat there all night just as, as this people talked because uh, they would queue up. There was, I believe, three or four seats. And they all had their own microphone and camera. And so as they talked, uh, because it was such a long read, uh, they had to switch people throughout the night and it automatically cut and I was gone. And I just, I would get up in the middle of the night and look and it was still working, just pop, 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 just switching. So I'll put a link in the chat to the uh, products. Yeah, absolutely. Javier. Is there a link to that show? I'm, I'd love to I'm in the. I was looking in the MixFX Pro website and there is a video follows audio um, feature and it looks like you can even like set like a threshold like minus 20 or minus 25 or and it switches inputs when it audio gets to that level so maybe it's gonna okay. we have to look into it because it I sounds think, like think, it doesn't yeah there's a lab there somewhere so let's let's yeah. figure that out yeah absolutely i'm gonna put that on my lab list all right next question from tony nakamposic in dallas looking for a mixer for town hall types of meetings is the Behringer X32 still to go to, or should I invest in something newer around the same price range? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, that would be good there. It depends on the size of your town hall. If it's eight uh, eight microphones or less, you might look into to getting whatever analog mixer you want, maybe getting a, a Dugan auto mixer. 
like this uh, model E1A. It's uh, it's unbalanced and it goes into the inserts into a, a, an analog mixer. So if your analog mixer has an insert jack in the back, but it's a quarter 20, uh, this can pop in there and then it will auto mix up to eight channels. Uh, so that gives you auto mix, which is what I would suggest if you're going to do town halls where you don't want to have a full-time mixer person controlling the microphones real time. Uh, there are plugins, of course, Dan Dugan makes a plugin and I think there's a plugin for the X32 or maybe Behringer now has their own noise, uh, their own auto mix, uh, algorithm built into it. Maybe yeah. uh, Alex can talk on that. Yeah. The Behringer has, uh, the first eight outputs have, or eight outputs have, um, Dugan auto mixing, you know, built in. There was, it was Dugan like, and then there was a lot of upset with Dan. <laughs> so, so it was like, because, uh, you know, his patent has run out, but his name is still very strong. And so, um, so the, 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 I think that they finally sorted that out. And so it's a, there's a Dugan Automix in, in the, in the X32. We really I, need to get him in for a second. I really, yeah, we'll get him in. He's, he's, he already said he would, I just have to get it scheduled. So the, um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, X32, I just haven't found anything at the price point that is like it. Now I get, I tend to lean towards the X32 racks because they're just easy to manage. And then we get an X-Touch on the out, you know, to, to actually do the, you know, fading. Um, and I find that to be just much easier than, than having, what the big thing is, is I don't want all the audio cables coming to a desk. I want all the audio cables to be in a rack. And then I want to be able to control it somewhere else. And so I'm, a, I'm partial to that. I haven't seen any mixer in that price range with that feature set. And that's why I keep on buying them. Um, the only problem we're having right now is can't find a Dante card for it. So um, that's the that's the little um, trick right now. Um, you always want twice as many inputs as you think you need. <laughs> like that, like that's, the, that's where you start. So if you have four mics, then you need eight inputs. And if you have eight mics, you need 16 inputs because you have playback and you have other things you want to manage. And But always go into it, you know, with a, a lot of headroom when you're buying something. And the X32 will probably keep a town hall running really well. You could probably run a town hall on an XR18, um, would probably make it work, but the X32 is what you want down the road because it has Dante and it has, you know, a lot of other things there, if you can find the Dante card. Uh, next question. Jens Olson from Sandpoint, Idaho, asking, what is a good headset to give a kid for Xbox so you don't have to listen to the horrible microphones that come on headsets marketed for Xbox? You know, Sennheiser makes some really nice, uh, you know, announcer mics that that are, you know, they're only three or four hundred dollars. You can probably figure out a way to get them in there, and then then they'd really sound great. <laughs> um, but if you're if you're just not trying not to listen to them, um, I think most folks that play want to have over the ear my um, headsets, um, and I think Logitech makes a lot of good, pretty good ones. Um, so I would take a look at that. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, many hardware synthesizers, even high-end models from the likes of Sequential, have unbalanced outputs. I know Alex has said never use unbalanced audio, but if you must, would keeping cable short and using a DI box preamp be the route to take? Good, Courtney. Yes, keeping cable short. The reason synthesizers use unbalanced is because they have patch panels. And for years, the analog synthesizer, the modular synthesizers, you'd patch control voltages and or analog audio from one module to the next module to the next module. And it was all unbalanced uh, audio between those modules. So that's why they're all tip ring sleeve, but unbalanced or tip sleeve and unbalanced. Uh, but keep your cable short. Don't run them more than about four or five feet and you should be okay. Next question. 
Philip Oler from Katona, New York. Is there any way to select the audio output of the ATEM HDMI outputs on an extreme? Seems program goes out of both, not matter no, no matter what is selected for the video output. That's what goes out. It's program. I don't think there's any other way to get it out. It's that's just what it's how it's designed there. Yeah. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, Courtney recommended Pacific Radio. There's a link to it as a supplier for custom cabling and other products. Would there be any supplier on the U.S. East Coast the panel would recommend? You know, for most of these things, it's just, it's national because you're just going to call them and talk to them about it and then they're going to mail it to you. <laughs> like that's that, you know, and, and uh, so I, I wouldn't really think, I, I wouldn't worry about the concept of East Coast and West Coast. Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, Marker Tech, B&H, um, mm -hmm. uh, all of Sweetwater, they're yeah. all good. Yeah. Next question. Next question in from Stuart Pearson in Central Scotland. I've just requested my Google Photos takeout data as I was nearing the free basic 15 gigabyte limit. The zipped files available to download are 115 gigabytes with all albums selected. Tried a second request for only the individual years. It's 70 gigabytes. Any ideas why? I'll go ahead, Courtney. Well, if you're trying to zip a compressed file, which is JPEG, most photos are stored in JPEG format, which is a compressed format already. It's one length compression uh, that's uh, JPEG. So that's already highly compressed. And if you try and zip a highly compressed file, it gets bigger, strangely enough, because of the type of compression that zip uses, uh, Huffman encoding usually. It uses a couple of different types, but usually if it's already compressed data, there's not very much duplication in the original files. So it can't really compress it much more. And sometimes the overhead of the zip compression adds additional bytes. So just uh, don't necessarily zip them, group them into folders and then move the folders. You don't have to zip them. Um, Bill, real quick. Yeah, I think he's mostly right about that. I would just say be careful that somebody didn't get a brand new DCR, uh, uh, brand new camera that has a high raster and copied them original size. Surprisingly, photos can be pretty big. And if you've got hundreds and hundreds of them, you can get large mm -hmm. files. Next question. Uh, it's for me, and I'm asking, what do you think of using this case for the basic or basis of a bespoke Playout B player? Right, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm looking for a uh, self-contained Raspberry Pi system with a touchscreen on the top of it, and the link shows this one example as a solid, full-built uh, uh, device. Just put the Raspberry Pi into it, add your Playout B, and off it goes. I think I'd be tempted if I was going to do that is to get the one with a high enough resolution that I could see pixel for pixel. So probably the 1920 by 1200, which is 160. It looks like a really interesting way to approach that. Um, yeah. I, I, we yeah, they have problem. different they have different uh, resolutions up to 10 inches. Yeah, the 10 inch one is the 1920 by 1200. I don't. I think I'd probably use the larger one to make sure that I could see what I could see there. But but I think other than that. I always wonder whether there's, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think, I, I can't wait to have you tell us how it uh, how it works, Mitchell. <laughs> I'm going to let you take those arrows. All right, uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, just make sure you can get the Raspberry Pi 4 because they're in extremely short supply. You can buy them overpriced on eBay, but that's about the only place you can find them. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm in the market. After I bought this longer monitor for... Uh, because I was like, oh, I don't need touchscreen now. I have one touchscreen. <laughs> I was like, oh, I need a touchscreen. So I'm, I'm looking for that. I'm not, I needed to have a little more power, though, because I need to be able to get video in. So I'm just kind of figuring that out. Good guy. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why you need 
the monitor because um, typically we just look at it in in preview or in the multi view, it, and just, so it's in the rack or it's far away. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't need to, it right there. I think that the thing is is being able to see what it's set to. You know, like there's there is an interface to it, so. Being able but to the have interface something. is so you control it the way I do it is page. I control it through a web page. Yeah, you load up your mm -hmm. clips, you queue them, and you play from a web page. I don't want to go back over to the Pi, um, but that's me. Maybe I'm, I'm not using it the way everybody else uses it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, Mitchell. Yeah, just uh, as a bespoke unit, meaning it's dedicated to doing exactly what it's doing. So I can head and tail, create a playlist, all of that right on the same device. Right. Right. So you have the web interface there. So you just, you don't want to have to, you don't want to have to have another computer or another window right. open. You just want to be able to just, this is the thing that does the thing. The workstation. Well, I can't wait for you to buy one and, and let us know how it works. That's, I'm super excited about that. Please uh, let us know when you have it. All right, next will. question. Next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany. What was the Dante chain that Alex is using for high quality phone calls embedding the XLR mic? Yeah, that's using an Audinate uh, Bluetooth. Um, it's Audinate Bluetooth. So it basically has, it does PoE um, to uh, to an Ethernet. I don't have it. I don't think I can, I don't think it's in arm's reach. Um, but it's PoE to a, to just a little um, pill. It's about, about, about uh, this long. And it just does, it shows up as a Bluetooth headset to my phone. And it's Dante into that, into that little Bluetooth thing. So it does in and out. So then I can just see it in my in my Dante control, and now I can just tie in anything that's on Dante in my in my in my system can tie uh, directly into it. What I was doing, you could do it through with loopback or whatever. You could do it through um, the computer if you don't have Dante on the device that you're using. I was using a Scorpio, so the Scorpio just saw it, so that you can just talk to it directly and uh, make it work. But you can you can do it um, a lot of other ways too. Go ahead, Courtney. I now know what to get Alex for uh, Christmas is one of these things that uh, can extend his reach so he can reach all that good stuff. It's not know, quite exactly. within it's reach. Right, it's right there. Anyway, I have question. one of those too. Yeah. <laughs> next question. Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. I have a Presonus 182-1824C uh, like similar units. It doesn't actually have 18 inputs. Suggestion for taking advantage of those extra ADAT inputs. Is there a simple hardware upgrade or am I better off using a completely different device? Uh, uh, ADAT is pretty specialized. <laughs> so, so as, as someone who used it heavily for a long time, um, I, I don't see ADAT around very often. Um, I don't know of a breakout for it. Uh, I'm sure that there may be one good, Courtney. Well, the ADAT, I think, uses uh, DB25, 25-pin connectors. Mm -hmm. uh, and once you get the pin out, I think it's just the pin out and the, the way that those digital channels are routed on those individual pins. And there are a lot of companies that make uh, breakout cables for them. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, what has your experience been running Dante on a converged network with other traffic? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, I have tried it when I originally was setting my system up. only have two channels. Uh, didn't seem to be a problem, but as you build that, you're going to have problems. Always best to keep the Dante on a dedicated switch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, we've not had a lot of uh, success doing having Dante share the networks. Technically, it can. And if the, if the, if the network is well, is well managed and you're giving it its own VLAN and there's some, I think that it's, an, is it Netgear guy that makes the, the switches that are kind of designed for this. And so they can, I think, manage that more effectively. So if you get specialized switches that are really designed to move that AV traffic around, 
Um, you may have a better luck at keeping it on the same network. But generally, when we build something that matters, uh, the, there's, it's all separate hardware and all the eco settings are turned off and it is, and it's tested for days. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, and that's how we, cause you know, you're still doing something kind of crazy, which is to pass all the, all the audio for your show over a network. And so you just really want to approach it with, um, you know, eyes wide open and, and that know that, you know, it's pretty dangerous what you're doing and you just want to manage it as such. It's powerful and we all use it and it's great but it is something that can go very bad very quickly. And I've, I've seen that. <laughs> I can tell you when you're on the front row of that, you don't want to do it again. Next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA, Josh asked, Office Hours will have its 1,000th, tough word to say, show this coming Monday, December 19th. The show starts at the usual time. You might want to be in your seats early, but will run longer. What do you hope to see on Monday's Kilo Show? Uh, go ahead, Sky. Three hours of my friends that I've made over the last two years. It's going to be a phenomenal experience. The team behind this has been we're putting a lot of effort into collating and getting representatives of for all of us. There's going to be cramming 3,000 hours into three hours has, has been a real effort, but Josh and his team has been doing a great job. There are panelists that will be coming in that maybe we haven't seen for a while, and they are already selected, and they're getting their invitations today, and they're getting their, their red carpet treatment as best as Josh can do. So uh, it's, it's going to be an amazing show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hey, go, Bill. The phrase embarrassment of riches comes to mind whenever I think about that. I've been privileged to be in the some of the meetings for the planning of this. And it is just we have done so much work here. There have been so many great people who have come through here um, and and just uh, moderate your expectations in this thing. There may be something you saw on the show at some point. You thought that was fabulous. And we hope it gets into the Kilo show. It may or may not just because there is so many there are so many people. There is so much great content. It, and cutting it down, boy, this is one of those things where editing is just, you have to be ruthless, kill what you need to kill. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a great day. You go, Mitchell. I'm a relative newcomer to the program about a year and a half here, and I'm very interested in how uh, the show's got started. Uh, it's getting a historical perspective. This is the one time and the one place you're going to be able to see that right there. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be fun. So, uh, so we're not doing Q&A on Monday. We're, we're going to start right into it. Um, so it'll be three hours of talking about a thousand shows. I think, I still think, we, someone needs to do some research. I don't think that there's any live show that's ever done every day for a thousand times the same format. Like there's I mean, TV shows that go on and off, but they they change. That's different. The weekend tends to be a different show. I so think I we think, beat out MASH and Bonanza both. Right, right, exactly. All right. We are now changing subjects and talking about chat GPT. I feel like in our community, uh, we, you know, we can't not pay attention to a lot of these, or we must pay attention. I had some bad English. Must pay attention to all of the, uh, all of the things that are happening in AI, whether it's, you know, we, we I made some incredible images yesterday. Uh, we were having a, a 3210, which is all a bunch of XILM and folks that are there. We were having a little, a little Christmas dinner. And of course, people started asking, we were doing mid-journey. And I realized mid-journey is a great thing to do around uh, drinks. <laughs> They're drinking beers going, try this, try this. The Millennium Falcon in the style of Ghostbusters. You know, it's like, you get these great images. And, um, you know, Princess, what was the big one was Princess Leia as in the Princess Leia as a robot um, in the style of Geiger. 
or Giger. <laughs> like, you know, those, those are the kind of ones that were very popular last night. So, um, but lot, when you get a bunch of designers and the thing is, is that a lot of these things are, you know, really, really picking up speed. Chat GPT, of course, uh, a little primer for, for those of you. I, I think I have it. I can, I can cut to it here. Um, this is what it looks like. Just so you can see it. So this is ChatGPT, and I can say, um, you know, let's switch this over. And uh, let me see if I can, yeah, there we go. So you can ask it questions like, um, uh, you know, oh, <laughs> how does balanced uh, audio work? And it will sit there and go, okay, I'm going to write you a, uh, See what it will see what now. And and one problem that you're seeing right now that that does occur relatively often is is that everybody's using it right now. And there's no so it can be very slow. There we go. Balance audio refers to a method of transmitting audio signals in which two identical audio signals are transmitted on separate wires and one being inverted in phase, um, which is inaccurate there um but it's it's yeah so um uh, this allows the, the signals to cancel out any noise uh, that may be present uh, on the transmission lines resulting in a clearer more noise-free audio signal during the destination anyway it's it and it it's it's writing this now it's not finding it on the internet it hasn't actually found anything new for a couple a year now it is. It has learned from the internet, and then it's pushing this this stuff back out. It's writing this stuff. It's the the, the um, you know, uh, you can you know that's something like balanced audio. But you could also say, um, uh, write or um, what is a good recipe for a sandwich. And one thing that I I, I actually um, made some soup this way uh, the other day. <laughs> I think we've talked about it in the past. Uh, so I asked it for a rainy day soup and I ended up with um, something that my family ate most of the week and loved it. Um, no, so, you know, so there's, so here comes the ingredients. So it's going to tell you how to make a, you know, some kind of, some, there's some deli meat. So it's, it's pretty general. It's pretty, it's pretty average, you know, in how it does, in, does those things. The interesting thing is, is that this is a real basic version of it. I was talking to, we were talking online with someone who asked it something more like, uh, write a Python script that will, um, write a Python script that will export FBX out of Maya. <laughs> and it wrote it. <laughs> like it wrote the code, you know, to do that. And they said there was a couple little things they had to change, but they um, but they were able to, to, to make that work. Um, it, it does one of the things that I find is that it's very concise and it has really good English structure. Um, the thing that I, that I find is that I, um, oftentimes now once when I'm, when we're in the show and I want to think about a concise way to talk about something, um, I'll, it's not that I don't know it. It's that I want to just like, how will, how would this describe it? I just throw it in there and look at it and like the phase, like it's, it's not, no, phase isn't accurate, but I go, okay, well, I know that that's not, that's not, didn't hit that quite right. It's confused by phase and polarity, by the way, <laughs> same way that Mitchell is. <laughs> so, so anyway, so it, so you can tell that if, if the internet is confused by something, it'll be just as confused by it as it, as it, as it is um, there. Yeah. Go ahead, John. I uh, just got the pricing information for OpenAI. They finally released their business model. And, much? and you're going to be able to embed uh, both image, Dolly, and the language models into your into your product. 
application. They sell tokens. So for a thousand tokens, which is equivalent to about 750 words, they have four, it's stratified four different each levels. Each token is 750 words? No, each to a thousand tokens is four hundredth of a cent for the fast one and two cents for Da Vinci, the most powerful. So they've got four levels on the language models and the images are like two cents for a, a 1024 by 1024 if you want to embed that in into your application. Wow. So that's a wait, how, how much are the thousand tokens? Thousand tokens for the words are is about seven hundred and fifty words. They start at four hundredths of a cent for the fast AI and two cents for the most powerful AI. So four hundredths of a cent. So you could do let's just say that's a search, right? So um so you could do two hundred searches. Uh, per dollar, right? Is that about right? I mean, a little bit more than that. Two hundred fifty searches per dollar. I have to. I'll do the math. Yeah. So you see if that's right. See if I, I just did that in my head. So I don't know. That could be very off. But I think it's about two hundred fifty searches per per dollar. Um, Does it and, charge you for every word it gives back to you? Well, that's that's how it's working. Is if it writes you a well, what a brilliant business model. Yeah. Because it yeah. could just be as verbose as it wants to be, and it makes more money. Yeah, but right now. So, it in summary, been. let me recap everything I just said. Right, right, exactly. So far, if it if it continues the pattern that it's doing right now, that's exactly the opposite of what it does. Which is that it seems to find the minimum number of words it needs to describe something, other than tell when you tell it, like I asked it, you know, what would what would be a, a uh, an adversary for James Bond in eighteen sixty five, and of course it started. Well, I can't do that because James Bond, the first James Bond film, you know, first James Bond book wasn't until nineteen fifty two, but. If we went back there, I'm sure that they'd be very smart and very ruthless and push James Bond to the end. <laughs> like, like this, like it, it, what was interesting was, is it broke, it broke the basic model out for you of James Bond. Like, you know, like, like it, it, it understands what James Bond will go up against. Um, it just doesn't, couldn't give me any detail, but it was just a really fascinating, um, a fascinating thing. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I'm interested in this for a thousand reasons, but one of the most important for me is the idea of voice, because writers all have voice. And this is going to be, I think, so popular, at least for a while till we see whether it it truly hits a massive uh, acceleration slope or kind of just becomes a fun thing. If it does the former and if it becomes really popular, I'm wondering if it will change what academic and other writers expect in terms so. of this neutral voice. Yeah, but it's interesting because, you know, like when Mitch reads and when I read, we all have our, our individual little things. If people start migrating toward a central standard that is computer generated, I wonder if that will change the diversity of how education and things like that accepts voice yeah. in explanation. I think that from an academia, I think the problem is, is that so much passive voice is used in academia. It's part of why all these papers are so boring. I totally agree. You know, you. like passive verbs just are littered through the entire thing and it just makes it really hard to read. Um, you know, the, when you read a book and you say, well, that just, that just buzzed by, it's because they were using a lot of active verbs. <laughs> they're using, there's only one book that everyone, I'm sure that it learned from is Strunk and White. And so if you just follow the Strunk and White rules, everything reads faster um, than, than if you don't. And no one in academia or government seems to under, know what Strunk and White is because they don't follow any of those rules. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. 
Uh, with all due respect to our uh, corporate, and I mean, our computer overlords, I'd be very interested to know if it actually knows about office hours. That'd be no, a it heck won't. Of a question. I think we're too new. Well, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ask it while, while we're going to the next one. Go ahead, uh, Javier. Uh, what I've done a lot of playing with it, uh, like you were saying, Alex, is like with cooking, that one of the great things is like, uh, make me a five-day uh, menu of people with these allergies. And it gives you like uh, like some recipes that avoid those uh, things. And you can also tell it like, we are three people, make a shopping list. And they say it sends you like a shopping list with, with weights and everything. Uh, the other thing that I've, uh, I've used is the, I have this in my fridge, what can I do with it? And it, yeah. it gives good ideas. And for learning, it, it's awesome. Uh, just very quickly, for learning, what, what I really like is like, you can do this like the musical learning, like give me a four bar guitar solo in the style of this guitar player and it gives you and it explains like using this kind of notes and this kind of techniques and this kind of slides and everything and in complex themes like for example the other day i was like explain me how tornadoes work but you can tell it like if i was a meteorologist or if i was a five-year-old kid or if i was a high school student and it gives you like different answers like going into the the, the subjects or like yeah. simplifying things yeah, and and I, you know, I've, I've talked to some developers who have been using it to think about how to code something. You know, they just go, write me, write me code that does this, 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 and this, and they see it and they go, well, we don't use that code. We just, but it, but it saves a lot of like searching, googling, <laughs> like it just, you know, I could Google and try to find example code, or I can just have it write me the code, and then and then look at it and go, well, I don't agree with this and I don't agree with that, but that was a good idea. I didn't think of that. You know, that type of thing. Yeah, good, Chris. First of all, you have to have your strunk and white nearby. Um, exactly. I gave it to my kids. I'm eight. concerned. I was like, here, I need you to read this book. This is all you need to know. <laughs> but, but besides the obvious, you know, Terminator implications of all this stuff, one of the things that, that, that I heard you say uh, a moment ago that like set off a chime for me, you said it asked it, you, they asked it to write some code, but there was just a few things that they had to fix. So I see sociologically that there's a dec that, that there's a split happening where as more and more people lean on these types of tools to do things for them, they are going to get less intelligent, less uh, mental acuity, less uh, aware of their world because they're going to lean more and more on this thing. And what you said, you said it was just a few things to, to fix. These are these are um, traditional coders who actually know how to find those problems. Think of the kid that asks it to code something simple, then a little bit more complicated, then more complicated, and then it and then it does something where it gets it wrong. And all of a sudden, you have this person looking at it going, well, well I, I don't know what's know, wrong with there's, it there's, because I it did that, all my coding up to this point. I think that there's a, there's a tension of what's possible and what, you know, what may go wrong. And the tension at what may go wrong, it's actually, I think, bigger than what you just said, which is that what you- well, I'm just getting started. Right, no, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but the, the danger is, is that, you know, that would be what a junior programmer does. If you get to a point where it can write all the basic code, there's no ecosystem for 
people to learn how to do basic coding <laughs> because because there's nowhere to fail because the thing just does all the things and, they, and there's no business for that anymore. There's only advanced coders, which will eventually age out, right? And so, so there, you know, you get into this time capsule of in some point in time, we run out of the people that can do the thing. It's the problem that we have right now with making phones. We can, we can't make the phones because we stopped teaching people. We stopped employing people who can make that kind of thing in the United States. The ecosystem went away and now we can't put the, now it's really hard for us to put that ecosystem back in, you know, and it's, and an ecology needs all those things. So that's the, that's the one side of that problem. But the interesting thing about it, because I think about this a lot right now because of, that's why I thought it'd be good for us to, us to think about it, is there is, we're very quickly shortening the, uh, distance from someone imagining something and creating it. And I think that that is really powerful in the sense of new ideas and education and visualizing things is that I can ask for something that I want to visualize and I can get it in what would even take a, a, a skilled person a day or two or a week to build. It just built like that, you know, and I can, and I can think about those things faster. So I think that there's there's places where we might be more creative because we're not encumbered by the the logistics of what it takes to actually put that together. But I do agree with you that there is a, there is a danger of destroying the ecosystem that, you know, of creation to the point where we, you know, we can't do it anymore. You know, like, you know, exactly. and, then we end, and we end up like, like, uh, and uh, I think that's a real, I think that's a real possibility and a real danger. This Absolutely. is killing this the is foreign a, teams. Well, this and, is and, a bad thing for our future. Well, I, yeah, I, mm. I, I, I just think that we have to be aware of it. And everything is bad and everything is good. And we just have to figure out how to get the most out of it. But the, um, but I think that uh, it's, it's interesting because we'll be able to come up with things, so solutions and all kinds of other things that, that we wouldn't be able to come up with if we were, you know, managing another way. And, and so I think that, but I do think that we have to think about that. Like most of us, I grew up where we got lots of things in boxes from the, from the grocery store, you know, and I, you know, just, we just know how to, I knew how to reheat things, you know, that's, you know, and that became that, that crutch. I've now, you know, gone back to, I cook almost everything from the raw ingredients. Like I won't, I go to the store and almost everything I buy is one ingredient on the box or, or the bag or whatever I'm getting. And I'm that person that you have to sit behind that has all that produce they have to weigh. It's very slow to, for me to get out of Whole Foods. Anyway, so the, um, uh, but I, but I found enjoyment in actually doing it, but I had to retrain myself to do that because that's not what I did for the first half of my life, you know, and, and so, so our first 80% of my life, and I'm trying to teach my kids to do that. And so I was gonna say it's rather ambitious. I, I'm pretty good at it now. I, I made no, I made, no, at the half of your life. I'm saying you're quite ambitious there. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, no, no, no. I mean, I'm saying anyway. Yeah. So your um, TRT is quite ambitious. Oh, I don't know. My, my TRT might be tomorrow. Anyway, so so the uh, um, up to when I said eighty percent up to now. Anyway, but I think that I, I do think that one of the big problems that we have in general in our society is is that people aren't learning to do things, aren't learning to make things, and there's a lot of there is a uh, there is a, um, a personal value and a and an enjoyment that comes with making things that we we're giving up, and I think that this is this could be part of that potentially part of that problem. But it does really help you make really great soups. I just you know just let you know it's I the soup was amazing. I'm making osh. I asked it to, to give me a recipe for osh soup, um, which is an Afghani my favorite soup, and um, uh, and uh, I'm going to make it on Sunday. Too many <laughs> carrots. Oh, no, you can't have too many carrots. They just have to be well-cooked. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
uh, I guess you get the uh, endorphin rush when you, based on your your prompts that you type in, and then you see the results, and that gives you the endorphin rush rather than creating something yourself. But to address Bill's uh, concerns that it would, uh, you know, if it's writing prose or if it's writing fiction, if you have it uh, create a story, uh, the fear that would give you a, a clinical result, you know, a dry, middle-of-the-road type of writing I would think since you can Dolly is already built with the algorithm that you can say, draw me a picture in the style of Degas or, or Rembrandt, uh, that it could achieve writing in the same fashion. So tell me a story written like, uh, you know, Carl Sagan or, uh, you know, uh, uh, any name your writer that has a floor, uh, floor, you know, a, a bellish style and see if it would generate uh text or a story in the style of, uh, you know. If I can comment on that, though, the, the, the concern for me is that, yes, you can go back and reference historical ones, but how does that develop? And this is to Alex's point that he was just making. How do you develop your own style if all you're doing is looking for stuff done in existing styles? Where's the farm well, team guess, for I the writers? I, I guess what I was saying is that I develop my style by looking at all the other things that I like. You know, like yeah, I have, there's like that's when I, when I do a design and that's the thing that I, I really feel like all of these things are doing that, you know, there's a big thing that artists have where they, they say, well, it's copy and pasting my work into, in some minor way into a new thing. It's not, it's building models, looking at all this text content, all this visual content, all these other things. They're, they're building models, which then they use those models to reproduce it in the same way that I build models. Like I, I used to have, when I was doing design work. I used to have a vision board of all the things that I really like that's coming out right now. And I would constantly be updating it and taking things out like, oh, I'm not interested in that anymore and everything else. And I, and I was getting archive magazine, communications magazine, like all these things. And I would just, I was just ruthlessly cut them up and put them on the wall. Like I love that look. And it was, and it was, it wasn't, it was, I would put things up that just made me, I liked it. Like it, I felt it. Like I just, oh, I really like, when I look at that, I like that. And I just put it up on the wall. Like, I don't know what that is yet, but as I did that, I definitely found my look. <laughs> and it wasn't that I'm copying other people, but I was finding what I like. And then I just started designing into, and then I started paying attention to what are they doing that I like, you know, Artistic and then I would, synthesis. But that that's was exactly, yeah. but that's, you know, so, so I think that, and I think we can still do some of that here. Um, I, I'll show you a picture that we did from mid journey yesterday. Again, we, there was star Wars stuff, but, but it was, um, uh, uh, but, but it, 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 it's an interesting thing. Yeah. That you can explore it, ideas and uh, think. It can incorporate styles. Like if you said, write something like Charles Dickens and it could make, make up its own funny names like Dickens used to, or Terry Southern used to, and Dr. Strangelove, you, know, you have characters named Bat Guano and Buck Turgidson, you know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Sky. Uh, the Texas phrase was, I don't know why I likes it. It just knows I do. So to your point, Alex, of why do I like a thing? So I'm reflecting into this in, in Chris's point as my wife is a third grade teacher, a teacher of third graders, and they 18 months of their life that is you can't they can't get back. She's still trying to bring them into um, that level of education that the administration seems to think they should be at. But they're missing 18 months of their life that is was not the same. So I just think it's an interesting point in time. And, and John, I'm wanting you to, as our statistician, note December 16th, 2022. And I want to come back to this a year from now, because in, in the dog years and now the internet years of exponential change, 
I think we're, we're going to see a, an, the combination of that 18 months of people missing their life, the third graders, that she asked them to write five three-sentence paragraphs. And of her 13 kids, about six of them said, I can't. And yeah. so that's going to, I don't know what that means, but there's going to be some statistical data that's going to go, yeah, this, this uh, AI is going to do a lot more for us, for people that can't do things. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that we have to get into a, account for is that the, if you're really, really good at what you do, there's a lot of, there's usually a lot of opportunity out there. If you are, the, the real danger we get into is if you're mediocre or below at what you do, all of this stuff is a threat. <laughs> like it is, you know, like I always tell people, if you're bored at, if you're bored at your job, um, you know, don't worry, you won't have it much longer. You know, like anything you're doing that's boring or repetitious or, you know, like, like you know, it's, it's, it's all going away um, because it'll do all those things for you. And, and I think that that's a warning for most of us to, you know, make sure to keep moving forward. Uh, we're going to, a couple more things and then we'll jump to the questions here. Go ahead, Jesse. I think back to when Grant Petty introduced the the cloud service on um, DaVinci Resolve and hearing him opine about how how impossible it was to get any kind of funding in Silicon Valley if you didn't have um, a subscription model on the first two pages of your your pitch deck. Um, that the reason I'm bringing that up is because. Um, to get funding in the world of AI. It, there's this need to to pitch it as a, a self-sufficient ecosystem and to kind of bury the the touch points, the human touch points that are necessary for any of it to work in even the most basic way. So there's there's the developers at the top who are writing the code, and then the second touch point would be uh, somebody putting in a query to one of these AI bots, at which point the AI generates some information. Um, uh, that information is generated on on the materials and the ideas and thoughts built by uh, millions of users across the internet over months, years, and then it's returned as if as if the AI generated it itself. And when when you talk, Alex, about the um, you know the the bottom forty or sixty percent of of people who might get pushed out of their industry, I think it's really important to remember. That these scripts, these these algorithms and AI bots are uh, wildly dependent on that bottom 40-60% to be able to generate any any of their it, thoughts it, at all. It's not. Not not on that. <laughs> it's it's really dependent on the top 20% of what they're putting into the internet, you know, to to do that. But it but I will I, I agree with you. We I don't think that we're all dependent on everything that we saw that happened before us and every other person that we interacted with. I mean, our, how we build thoughts and how we do things are, are, um, so I hear you. I, and I, and I, the reason I bring it up is that I think that we have to figure out how we're going to, what opportunities and how we provide opportunities for those who aren't as good at what they do, you know, who aren't, you know, didn't get the opportunity to have the right education, didn't, weren't in the right place, weren't in all those other things. We have to, you know, figure that out. I bring it up as a way that we, we're going to have to manage that because you can't have that many people not able to do something. And, and I think that, and, and we've heard people who are dealing with AI talking about this for a long time. Google talks about it. Um, you know, you know, they're, they're like, Hey, we got to figure out what to do with everybody that can't do anything because that's coming. And a lot of us are like, yeah, is it really coming? It's coming. 
<laughs> like, you know, where there's, you know, and we have to figure out what that, what that actually looks like. And I don't know if we have, we don't have the answer yet, but we have to figure that out because this is going to, you know, replace a lot of, you know, things. And it's also going to make a lot of things scalable that weren't scalable before, you know, that we we're able to do things that, um, you know, that, that are really, that really are powerful in a way that it would be very hard to organize around, um, you know, around that. So, so, you know, so I think that, but, but I think that it's going to take, take time. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's jump I, into the uh, question. Oh, go ahead. I'm not, go I'm ahead. not saying, uh, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that there are two infrastructure problems that are occurring simultaneously in my mind. That's all I was trying to say. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I agree with you. Uh, next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada. Chat GPT is great at quickly organizing information that is generally accurate with common errors and lack of nuance. It works well as a support tool for those who already know the subject. How would you help novice users understand these limitations? Go ahead, Javier. Uh, what I found is, like, is that uh, using it is well, like trying to get a wish from a very literal genie. So the different ways of asking for information is going to give you very different answers. So just like try different things and try different ways of uh, like asking. For example, you can say like, give me a 10 bullet points on this topic or give me a 500 page uh, essay on this topic. And you can also like get into things like, uh, for example, like talk to me about tornadoes, but uh, especially with information about the weather or the velocity of the winds or if you want to go deeper and the other way around if you want to keep it simple tell it give me a simple explanation of this or give it a, like a kid's explanation to this so like trying to ask the, the same question with different uh the different ways you want to get the, the 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 response and you're gonna after a couple of hours you're gonna get good at it yeah you go to courtney yeah, and chat gpt and has that wonderful uh ability to keep things in context. So if you ask it a question, it gives you an answer, and then you ask a secondary follow-up question, then it knows that you're asking that secondary follow-up question about the first topic that you just asked it. So, and it also has a try again button, I think, at the bottom. So if you tell it to give you a story about a little dog named Ruggles, and, and you don't like the story, you hit try again, it creates a whole new different story about a little dog named Ruggles. So, uh, you got to know that it, it's expandable and it's uh, permeable uh, in that it, it takes in new information and can generate uh, different information each time you ask it that question. It depends on the accuracy. Going back to the accuracy, it, it depends on what it was trained on, what, what the model was trained on. If it was trained on curated information, like if it scraped Wikipedia, which of course is you know uh, crowd curated, so it tends to settle into actual accurate knowledge wikipedia does even though anybody can put anything in there they want to it's if somebody puts in a false statement or something that's not true or or uh, incorrect it's quickly corrected by the you know thousands yeah. of people out there that are monitoring you go javier and just quickly adding to the context thing uh not only it learns con or it understand context like give me the four day meal plan and then make it vegetarian and then change it for three people but it also remembers like things from above like right now chad asked something in the chat so i tried doing the guitar solo and then i asked like five things like many re uh, related things and then my my seventh prompt was transpose the guitar solo and without any more context of my part, it transposed that solo. So as long as you don't clear the chat, it keeps the information that you're fitting it. So use it like that. 
And I think one thing that I'm curious about is there's four models. There's Ada, Babbage, Curie, and and Da Vinci. And I'm curious what we're dealing with right now when we use chat GPT. I don't know if we know what that is. Like, which one have we been interacting with? Like, is it Ada? Is it Da Vinci? Um, you know, I, I'd be curious to know what th- what that one is. I, I will say that beyond all the other things, um, genius rollout model, like genius rollout model that they just did here. Because if you look at what they did is they <laughs> they got it out here. They got millions of people like just using this like crazy and then now they're slowing it down. You can't just keep asking chat GPT questions. I started to try to give you more samples and it's like, whoa, you've asked too many questions. So they've already clamped it down for the use, for the free and they're immediately rolling, at the same time they're rolling out, hey, you can pay for it. Um, John, do you know, I don't know if John can hear me. Oh, I don't know if he knows what, what the model is, but anyway, that's that's what we're, um, so I think it'll be, it's a gen- genius way to roll out a, a product, I, I will say. Uh, next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Uh, Paul asks, is chat GPT safe for office hours? I think it probably is. I mean, I think that the thing about chat GPT is that it's, it is, uh, it's got a lot of safe safeguards on it. It's not, you know, you can't put in a lot of things that I don't think it, you can, I don't think you can ask it to build a terrorist weapon. I don't think you can ask it about, you know, there's certain, you can't ask it about things that are not safe for work, I believe, or you can't get very close to that. Go ahead, Jesse. Are there any plans to have an AI guest on the show ever? <laughs> Ooh, that'd be interesting. Chris would stop coming. He would just be like, I am not, I'm not playing along with the guest. It's a hard no. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Did you find out if uh, it knows who we are? It, it, the answer? it told me you, you're asking too many questions too fast. So someone else is going to have to do the search. I've already ah. done, <laughs> done ones. Um, so yeah, it hasn't, hasn't come back yet. Um, yeah, go ahead, Tom. Well, I did the search. Tell me about Office Hours Global. And it reads, Office Hours Global is a program that provides free one-on-one mentorship and support to individuals and organizations around the world. And it goes on and on, and it talks about one-on-one yeah, that's mentorship. Yeah, so that's because that's not what it is. That's officehours.com. That's the, so that's that's what they came out. But I asked global. <laughs> I know, but it's, yeah, it doesn't know the difference. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but a couple of days ago, Marquez Brownlee did uh, a thing about AI and creativity. And uh, in the piece, he uh, he started with it with the he opened it up yeah with something he, that was written by the bot yeah he did and it was okay it wasn't Marquez it was okay the, there was quite a bit of repetition in it uh, and I think that maybe if it hears the word script it realizes you know I have to tell you what I'm going to tell you I tell you and then I tell you what I told you uh, maybe. Um, but I, I've been chatting with Preto about this. I think there's a point where this average, when average becomes normal, you know, because because it's like, well, it's pretty good. And a lot of people are just going to go, well, it's like VHS. It's pl- it's plenty good enough. Well, or or <laughs> I mean, it it it's just like VHS is plenty good enough. It's just like the food that we eat. You know, it's just good enough. Everything is good enough, you know, and and I think that that's where, you know, that's where things start to get interesting is that, is that uh, you know, good enough is, is really, um, I always say that good enough is the, is the, um, uh, the adversary to great, <laughs> you know, like, you know, is, is, you know, is, is people saying it's, it's, it's good enough, but I, I think that our entire Western lifestyle is around, is 
built around good enough. You know, <laughs> so uh, so I agree with you on on that. Um, but yeah, so so I think that 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 that, and I think that again, we when we have these things, I think that we are we um, uh, when we have these things available, I think people still continue to gravitate more and more towards things that are manual, things that are different, things that are, you know, handmade. Um, you know, I find that, you know, I, when someone asks me for, a, a, you know, a gift, I'm like, well, make something, send it to me or don't. <laughs> don't you don't need to buy some knack, knickknack to, um, you know, unless it's, you have to really be careful with me because I, I hate knickknacks. So people send me knickknacks and I just, I, I used to feel bad about throwing them away, but I don't anymore. <laughs> you know, so, so it has to mean something. So if you send me something meaningful or something useful, I'm super excited about it. If you if you send me a knickknack, uh, I will just throw it away. I don't even. Do you try still to have a it. bag of plastic bananas? I do have the bag of plastic bananas. Like that because that was that that that's a prop. That's a prop. I have the bag of plastic bananas because that's because now there's a uniform scale. You know, like it's it's a uniform banana. Scale. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, go ahead, Dust Guy. Alex, when you get that package from me, that's a handmade knickknack. So please don't. Throw <laughs> That's a handmade. <laughs> so, it will collect dust on your Hand, shelf back there. Handmade behind. is fine. Handmade is fine. Handmade things. Uh, handmade things I usually keep. I have a whole, my, my daughter paints rocks for me. And so I have. Oh, I do have something for you then. Rocks, then yeah, it, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm just looking at the, again, the past two years of the things, the language that I've learned in the technology, the pieces of equipment that have been introduced to me that are new, that I knew I need to understand. So that's why I'm here today, because I think this is a pivotal, seminal moment. And I'm, I'm curious, I haven't really signed up and I don't know this landscape very well, but Javier, if you could type in the word Luddite. Yeah, exactly. Um, because yeah, that's, that's, that's the original people group that said, we're not moving forward, we're staying with the same old ways. Yeah. And I want to see if Chris Fenwick's name shows up. I right, go ahead, Bill. I've thought for a long time that all the automation that we see, and we see a lot of it in video, right? Auto exposure, auto white balance, audio level. It's never been easier to get from zero to 50% on the quality scale from none to expert. But it's always been just as hard to get from 50 anywhere close to higher up in the process. And I think this is going to be one of those tools that does that, the same kind of thing. It's going to make competence, that basic competence, probably easier for a lot of people to, to toss tasks into this and get something okay. But I don't think it's going to change anything on the 50% to 100% of the art scale, because that always takes so much specific effort that I think a human being has to be done. And one thing that, that we haven't really delved into is also ownership. So right now, no one knows who owns what. I mean, generally what people are saying is that you um, don't own it. Like if you, if you generate something with AI that you can't copyright it. Now, what has been brought up, well, if I take it into Photoshop and I make a color correction, then, then I do own it because <laughs> no one owned it before that. And now somebody owns it. If I paint a little over top of it or something like that, then it becomes mine. So there's a lot of back and forth of like what, who does own all the stuff that's being generated out there. So it's something else to think about there. Let's go to the next question. John Fultz in Ceilingscope, Pennsylvania is up next. He says, news reports say a Google all hands meeting talked about chat GPT. Apparently Google says something like we have the same capabilities as chat GPT, but it would damage our reputation to launch it now. Could Alex translate that? What is Google really saying? Yeah, uh, go ahead, John. So Google bought DeepMind in 2015. DeepMind's founded in 2011, and Demis um, over at DeepMind, they're they're doing amazing things. They're doing protein folding. 
they beat Go, they've they've solved chess. And so so they're right there. They're they have nothing to fear. They have nothing to fear. I think that what they're trying to they've been afraid, I think, of uh, this gets into the whole like uh the the your AI overlords. I think that when Google does it at scale, I think that what they're saying is they're concerned that suddenly everyone will get scared and uh, you know <laughs> of what 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 they can do. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and they kind of did it. Uh, I mean, Google's expertise has been at parsing language uh, for doing searches, and they had this program called Duplex, which they just canceled, which uh, had an automated assistant that used uh, language, and it was amazing at the ability to understand because it could conduct an interview with a live person and gather information make appointments for you. And if the person on the other end isn't speaking, is speaking broken English or not forming, you know, <laughs> human intelligible sentences uh, that Google would figure out what they were saying and give uh, cogent answers for it. Well, it was really scary in the way that it's, uh, it's artificial uh, assistant responded to the point that I think uh, it, it scared people. And I think that's why they ended it because it became that people believed it was sentient uh, when it really wasn't. What I what I found fascinating about uh, Duplex was that they added breaths. They had sound samples for breaths because it made people feel more comfortable with it. It felt too machine, but they, they, they could hear them. And, and it, it, what was funny is it bothered me. Like as soon as I turned it on and I heard a breath, I was like, oh, they're making that up. And that was super weird for me. For me to hear the breath was, and I, you know, but they did it to make it more personal. Go ahead, Chris. Kind of like the typing noises where you're talking to the robot when you call for support. Um, I just want to let everybody know that robotoverlord.com is already taken. We need to be concerned. <laughs> I do think, you know, and, and, and again, it's, um, you know, we, uh, I worked on an A-Life in an A-Life company in the early 90s. And, you know, a lot of this stuff was, you know, is, um, it was a little too early for what it was doing. But you know, I realized, like, I, I, when I saw what it could do, and this was 30 years ago, it was, I was, I admit, I was terrified. Like, it was, it was just a, it was a, all we were doing is walk cycles, but you'd leave something and it couldn't, you didn't know how to walk. And if you gave it not very much gravity, it would start to prance because that's the most efficient way to go in low gravity. And if you gave it heavy gravity, you'd come back the next day and it'd be like, like this big muscly, you know, movement because that's what it figured out was the best way to do that. And the fact that it could do that on its own, I was like, okay, that's a little frightening. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, one of the very first like professional studio video jobs I did was in nineteen, the summer of 1986. And for three weeks, uh, Hewlett Packard put a guy in a little set that we built him with a chalk, chalk, may have been a whiteboard, chalkboard, whatever. And all he did for three weeks, eight hours a day, was talk about artificial intelligence. Right. The, Vipin Kumar was his name. That's the only thing. I, Hello, my name is Vipin Kumar. Let's begin. And he would turn to the chalkboard. And every word he said after that was a mystery. And we had to cue him every 60 minutes because that's how long a pneumatic tape was. And he would go, we will come back for more. And then we'd fade to black. Put in a new tape. Go. Yeah. Three weeks we let this guy talk. It was crazy. Go ahead, Sky. So I typed in, what should I get my son for Christmas? And it came out not with a list of things and places to go buy them, but it did give me some good ideas and good tips. And at the bottom, <laughs> it, it did say, 
it's always important to remember. And that reminded me of you, Chris, of, of you, you, Alex, because it says it's important to remember that it's the thought that counts. So even a small heartfelt gift is meaningful and appreciated. So expect your gift uh, in the in the mail, Alex. Thank you. Yeah. The 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 thing is, I still have the I still have. I the coffee cup? See, I still got the little... Aww. Yes, thank you. Anyway, um, but the, uh, the, the thing about ChatGPT also is that it, it works better if you give it detailed, you know, like, so don't, you know, it's like, what do I give a seven-year-old who likes this, 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 and this? You know, the more detailed you are, the more detailed it responds. Um, next question. Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts, up next with what particular industry segments do you think are not ready for the permanent or the imminent AI disruption? Generally things that make your head hurt. You know, like if you're thinking about something, you're working on something, you're like, oh, it's a hard problem or, you know, it's, it is complex. You know, a lot of times uh, people would ask me what I do and I go, well, I, I do complex live events. <laughs> I like, I like I do things that you have to go, mm, I don't really know how to make that work and we're gonna have to figure it out. It eventually might be able to get to that, but there's a lot of things around design, high-end design, um, things that require people thinking. It could be, I mean, even lawyers and, you know, that, that type of thing. Those things are hard. Like that you, because you're looking for a nuance that that AI will, I'm not saying it'll never replace it, but it probably won't replace it, um, you know, as soon as other things. Like I wouldn't want to be working at McDonald's. You know, like those are the kind of things that, that, that that's a, a place that is going to, I mean, everything from taking your order to, you know, the last vestiges, there's a, there's a McDonald's in Phoenix that runs on two employees and they have one that runs the back end and they just make sure that everything's working. And the other one takes your order <laughs> because they, they don't, they didn't have a computer to do that yet. And, um, and that it's just an R and it's an R and D McDonald's, but that's what, you know, like a lot of just, I'm going to shovel things in and out. Uh, you don't want to be anywhere near that. Like you, you want to move through that as fast as you can and get to things that are hard and that you have to think about and create. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. I think anyone who makes their living off of uh, being a the world's most knowledgeable person in fill in the subject, uh, you know, people like that that are authorities uh, in a specific subject or field might feel threatened because if it generates an even better authority than the people that are writing tons of books uh, on any subject, uh, that it can coalesce many more opinions and perhaps it can filter out and uh, debunk a lot of uh, wacko theories and uh, strange ideologies that make their way into press and radio programs, and things like that. So those people may be in for a rude awakening if there becomes a central authority on all topics. Yeah, but of course, how would it know? <laughs> how does it know <laughs> I, I i just don't know like the problem is it's based on its inputs and it would have to have almost infinite inputs to make him you know an infinite you know um decision and so um you know there's a lot of things that well so it does just like google search does it 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 uh, right. derives its amp its answers from the popularity or the voting you know the number of people right. that have asked the same question or the number of people mm -hmm. given the same answer so it, it weights its answers based on the popularity of the response. Yeah, popularity of answers, though, may not be the right one. Go <laughs> Jesse. Uh, I do think that there's a, uh, about the, the experts in the field, there's like a certain amount of charisma that's tethered to that that is, I, I would say, is now impossible to replace. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, I, I don't want experts, but, but I think that in general, if you're at the top, you know, you, you really want to be looking at how can I do something really well, you know, as, you know, and I, um, a lot of times, uh, you know, I talk about this in, in other venues where 
if you're living in America, you know, there's a pressure to be better at what you do because it's, there's a cost, there's a cost of being here, you know, and there's a lot of people around the world that can do it for less than you can, you know, and, and so you have to figure out how am I going, what makes a difference of me being here and what, what, how do I, you know, excel? And I think that a lot of people want to, you know, live a, a relatively normal life, you know, and casual and have their weekends and do their thing. <laughs> but they're, you know, that's, that's, you know, if you're taking it easy and kind of coasting along, this is, this is a pretty hard pill to, 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 to have here in front of you. You know, like that's the, that's the interesting puzzle. Um, next question. Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia, up next with, as an educator, there is both a fear and interest in AI use by students. ChatGPD will identify anything it created. What are the positive benefits of using AI in schools? Good, Sky. Seth Godin talks about trying to find us a, a problem that you're going to solve rather than doing something repetitive. And that's what I'm, I'm hearing is happening here. Mm -hmm. The other phrase that I've heard is the challenge is going to become the guide on the side versus the sage on the stage we've been talking about you know that that person that is the authority in a, in a topic the other fascinating thing is hearing my wife talk about cursive is no longer taught in schools and memorizing a times table is no longer an expectation so as these tools come forward i think this is the the new one is how to ask better questions yeah yeah and you know, we, we oftentimes in, in, in my family say, it's not what you know, it's how well you Google, <laughs> you know, and, and you get good at asking Google. I, I'm very good at asking Google questions. Well, and that's that becoming need. to the education question. That's yeah. becoming the, the new teaching strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Javier. Yeah, definitely. One, one would be learning how to ask better questions. That's a great skill. Uh, and two things that I, that I think uh, can be great for learning. Uh, the first one is uh, for math and for uh, physics and for all of the kinds. When I, when I was in school, I remember that you can go to the back of the book and see if your answer was correct, but you don't know where did you go off the rails. So with GPT, you can ask it like you input a math problem and not, uh, it only gives you the, the answer, but you can tell it show me how to solve it. So it'd be like, first do this and then do this and this is the other. And the other thing would be when trying to study like uh, geography or history or something, because you can really quickly ask it, give me a 20 question quiz for this subject. And it only gives you the questions. And then you give it, now tell me the answers. And that, that way you can practice things because when you are quizzing yourself, you always know the answers. <laughs> but that when you do it like that, it's like having an automatic like uh, teacher, like that gives you some questions and shows you how to answer it. Yeah, go, Bill. When nearly everybody has access to all the information, then access to information becomes relatively worthless. What becomes valuable is curation. It's trying to figure out which pieces of the information are valuable and how do you synthesize that piece of information with another one you got from somebody? Because we're going to get overloaded. We're already overloaded by information. We can look up anything, but yeah, then acting on it becomes hard. Yeah, you know, curation is always going to be something that's going to be interesting because uh, there's a, I think it's called the Builder's Bookstore, if I remember correctly. I don't even, I know where it is. I don't even know what it's called, but it's a, um, it's a bookstore in Berkeley on Fourth Fourth Street, and it's my favorite bookstore, and it has been my favorite bookstore for 25 years, and I go there, you know, relatively often. Um, I take my kids there if they, if one of them goes there and they, they're allowed to buy any book. I'll buy any book that they. That's what, this is a tradition that came from my family. Well, I'll buy you any book that you want in the store, <laughs> you know, like, so, um, and, uh, and so they, they pick out a book and, 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 and get it. And, 
Um, but it's all around design. There's a whole section on like topography and there's another section on logo design and a section on Japanese architecture and section on ecologies. And, you know, then it also has like building regulations for California, you know, those types of things. And so it is a, uh, you know, but that, to your point, Bill, it's all about curation. It's that I don't know, I've never even heard of these books. I just go in and look at them and go, oh, you know, and there's so like probably a third of the books that I own come from that one bookstore because I just went in and, you know, I love that subject. I just don't know what to, and I don't, I can't get a sense of it in Amazon. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, Wikipedia is probably the closest thing to this, only it, instead of using uh, AI algorithms, it uses the hive mind of uh, yeah. having anybody be able, you know, all, all general humanity that reads it can offer corrections. And the nice thing about Wikipedia is at the bottom of each Wikipedia page, it, it, it shows you the links to the authorities where that information that is contained in the article came from. Uh, ChatGPT doesn't have, uh, you don't know where it got its information. So that's kind of a questionable problem. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. We're going to run out of time. Uh, next one from Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. Will ChatGPT replace text-based search engines? I don't think so. I think that this is a, it's a different thing. Like, I don't find myself going, well, I'm not using Google because I'm using ChatGPT. I ask ChatGPT questions that I'm trying to think about. Um, but when I, oftentimes that leads to me then searching on Google about things. And sometimes, you know, you know that something must exist in this area, but you don't know how to put it into words. And so I find ChatGPT, I can clumsily describe something and then it gives me back words that I understand that I then use to search, <laughs> you know, on, on Google. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's completely different. Google search gives you links into other, you know, people who sell or have more information or whatever your topic is. And I haven't seen uh, ChatGPT ever issue a link to, you can say, tell me more about that. And it will generate more, right. but it won't send you someplace else. Yeah, no, and but I, I just use that for Google. I, I mean, I just cut and I, I find the cut and paste is super useful. Um, uh, next question. Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia. ChatGPT has taught me curl programming in answer to a question I asked. What has the panelist learnt? Um, there, I, I showed this the other day. That's the soup that I made. Um, that is, I asked for a rainy day soup. That's all I asked for. I didn't ask for, um, I, you know, what is it? What, give me a recipe for a rainy day soup. And I got that and I made it and we ate it all week and it's great. And um, <laughs> so it was, it was really good. I'll make another one. I, I feel like there's a whole YouTube channel of just making recipes generated by <laughs> ChatGPT. <laughs> like, you know, it's so, so, you know, you could probably just cook, cook the recipes there. Um, but uh, that's the main thing that I think I've, I've learned. Um, yeah, go ahead, John. I've been using it for, for Python coding and for JavaScript coding and also for SQL queries. It's great. I've been querying the Office Hours database with it. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Sky. I, I entered more details about my son and I'm getting a lot better information. So I'm getting a, he's going to get a great Christmas present. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I haven't even touched it yet. And I think I'm going to wait a couple more weeks before I do it. And the reason is this, I was surprised. I came so slow to understanding that everything I clicked on in Google and things like that was changing my feed. I understand that completely now, but I didn't understand that at all in the first six months that I was clicking around and having, you know, my friends getting married. So let me do wedding stuff. And all of a sudden my feeds 
infected with wedding stuff. I needed that for five minutes, not for my entire life. And I want to make sure as I dive into chat GPT or some of these other things that whatever the unintended consequences of how I proceed in it doesn't snap me later. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yes, I've learned that learnt and learned are both acceptable past participles <laughs> to learn. What's that nice? <laughs> I love All seeing right. that word. Let's go to the next question. Todd Rains in Allen, Texas says, this is a question I ask OC chat DGPT. Can you explain the meaning of 444 and 422 and 420 as it pertains to video quality? So um, let's see here. Let's let's see if I it'll let me do another search here. So um, so can you explain the meaning of 444 and, it says, and 422 and 420 as it pertains um, to video quality this is going to be fascinating of course i say can much say no i can't um let's see if it we'll come back to it and we'll, we'll see if it if it says anything here all right uh well if it, if it actually responds oh here it is hold on hold on here we go you can see it actually working 422-444-422 and 420 are color sampling schemes used in video systems. They refer to the number of bits of information used um, to uh, represent the color in each pixel of the image. In a 444 color scheme, each pixel represented by three color channels, red, green, and blue. Um, each channel is sampled at a rate of four bits per pixel. Um, and this is all wrong. <laughs> like, like, it's not right. So like, like it's not even, uh, it, it has mis, it is, it misunderstands, uh, it, you know, the result of 444 is 48 bits per pixel. It's not, it's not even like this isn't, uh, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it, it sounds very authoritative though. That's the whole thing is that if you didn't, this, this gets back to what we were talking about before. If you didn't know what you were looking at, you would think that that was correct. Um, but it's not. And, and, and that's my anxiety is that it's going to make office hours redundant. It's not though. See, the problem is, is that that but, just this is why office hours exists is because if, if you ask me, so somebody else raised their hand. And goes, four, no, four, <laughs> it, you know, like if you ask, I can give you a much better answer than that. And this is a uh, this is a horrible answer. I'll give it a feedback. You later. know that, right? But I'm saying that the reason that office hours exists is so we have people who actually know things answering questions as opposed to um, googling it. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, you don't need to go to a computer to get the wrong answer. You can come to me and get the wrong answer. <laughs> And it's much more fun. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, the, there was something I was going to say uh, relevant, and now I forgot it because I had to be a, uh, make a joke. Uh, never mind. Bye. I mean, it's it's close. Like, there's other parts of it that look right, but it's not right. Yeah, it's... Oh, attribution. I wonder if you pay extra if it'll give... If you can get attribution for where it's getting these wrong answers from. I the problem is it's not getting it from anywhere. It's not copying and pasting something in. It's making something up. And so that's the, like I tried that recipe that I did. I cut and pasted every set of terms in there and it it doesn't exist one for one anywhere on the internet. Like it's not, it is, it is, um, it made up a recipe. Like, you know, it sampled that lots of things. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, I can't, I can't even wrap my head around this. It, it, it did not, it, it made it up. It, like it didn't, it made it up based on billion, millions of recipes, I'm sure, of, of things that say rainy day soups. But it 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 made a bunch of decisions. Now I will admit that I added more spice. That I doubled its spice uh -huh. spice content because I was like, that's oh, going to be really bland. So I I did make a human adjustment to. I didn't follow it verbatim because I was like, that's a lot of work, and I'm not going to follow it verbatim and know that it's bland. It <laughs> so sounded it, like, it sounded like right though. It sounded accurate, and that's the the fear. Yeah, it did. I mean, it's not now that I look at it, it's not completely inaccurate. It's just 
usually it's really good at explaining something and be in concisely that actually means something but not here. But again, I just want to say in all fairness to ChatGPT, I know it's upset about the way we've been talking about it, um, <laughs> is, uh, is that uh, when we read articles about, um, when I read articles about almost anything, like we were getting ready for that HDR and I was, I was wanted to make sure that I was giving everybody accurate information about HDR and different HDR formats. And I was watching little YouTube videos and I was watching little blog posts and everything else. I had the same feeling reading everybody's descriptions of HDR, like a bunch of yahoos on on YouTube and, and uh, you know, trying to explain this, that I, um, uh, I felt the same way about almost everything I wrote, almost every blog, every article, everything on HDR written by someone who doesn't do it. Uh, I felt the same way I feel about ChatGPT. Chat Did you just <laughs> apologize to ChatGPT for being no. harsh toward it? No, I just, I, I, I guess, I guess what <laughs> I would say did. is I that heard it, too, it is, Chat GPT has the same observer mistakes that people that write things for magazines and newspapers and everything else have. They are not a content expert. They are writing about something that they don't know and they make lots and lots of content errors that sound authoritative. <laughs> you know, like this is how our press works, right? And so the thing is, is that unless they are the person who is the expert, very rarely do they get it right. And they get, they're about as accurate as ChatGPT. Um, next I, question. I think it was pretty correct, except that you didn't specify whether, you know, the bit depth that you were working at, 12-bit or 24-bit. It doesn't yeah. mi- It doesn't matter though. Like the, the bit does. depth doesn't matter to 422 and 444. It's the scaling. It's the number of pixels that are, how many pixels are getting. And it's not RGB, it's YUV. It, 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 like RGB is is flat out wrong. It has to be YUV. That 422 is... 4Y, um, like 422 is 4Y, 2U, 2V um, in representation of the number of pixels that are, are represented in that in that scheme. And so anyway, it's just it, it, it's like it's the, the, as soon as it says RGB, you're off because there's no way you'll ever find your way home if you're trying to look at 422 as an RGB status. Um, go ahead, uh, John. Uh, what's your favorite use of the chat GPT was the question. Um, I use it to write poems to my wife. Today's her birthday and GPT wrote a lovely <laughs> poem for my wife. It is exceptional. Nice. It is exceptional at haiku. Like just so you know, like the haiku, I, I for some reason I have it write haikus all the time. Like write a haiku about HDR. And it did it did one. And it's HDR-ish. I can't remember what it was, but it was like, I was like, oh, that's really good. And so um, I find that haiku, it does exceptional haikus. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. He says, what do you think chat GPT and technologies like it will affect education? How do you think it will affect education? Will educators ban it and punish students that use it? Or will it change how students are taught and assessed through the educational enterprise? Good, Mitchell. I was the first student in my high school to have a calculator. It was giant, about the size of a brick. And there was a lot of fighting over that, how it would affect my ability to understand arithmetic when I had a device that was doing it for me. I think the similar rules apply here that uh, ChatGPT um, is just helping you extend your reach a little bit beyond your normal uh, grasp. And um, it didn't mess me up. Please, <laughs> two plus two, well, whatever. Yeah, I mean, there there is a, um, I think that a lot of educators will try to ban it. And it's going to be very hard, you know, because again, it's not, it, uh, as I said, I think it has some safety features in it, which if you cut and pay, there's a way for educators to see if it would generate it verbatim, but but you can, you know, so there's ways to see that students will get caught doing that like they would get caught in other things. Um, but, but I think that allowing them to um, think about things and ask questions and then 
back it up with Google searches and and so on and so forth, you know, and then and then kind of work through it. I think it just means that they'll learn faster. Go ahead, Courtney. And just the internet in general has changed education. You know, if, if students have a thirst for knowledge, they can go on to the internet and, you know, type a subject in and get far more information that the average teacher will be able to give them in a classroom situation. The, the teacher's job really is to coalesce and, and give you know, the primary information about a subject and then leave it up to the student to research it. For not, a, not according to the administration. It's, it's uh, make sure. And, yeah. and, and getting back to Bill is curate. You know, curation, curation of, of knowledge is really important for the teacher. And that's what they were doing when they were using textbooks, except that was being curated by Pearson, you know, and, and it was, you know, being for, for them. And now there's just all these different inputs. You know, when I see the classes that I see my kids take, when I see them take them and there's a long list of, of YouTube and other things that they should go look at, I'm like, okay, that's a good teacher. And when it's all generated by the teacher, I'm like, oh, that's gonna be really slow. Cause they're just not, they just can't generate that. They, they don't have the production capacity to keep up with the internet. Go ahead, John. All the kids of the future will have Neuralink installed and they'll have AI directly pumped into their brain. Game over. <laughs> No one's going to put a wire into my into my head. That's all I'm saying. All right, uh, next question. James Babbitt, San Diego, up with how was ChatGPT developed? Go ahead, John. So you got to go watch Sam Altman on YouTube. Search for him. He's the CEO of OpenAI. They started in 2015. They've been working on this. He's been talking a little briefly about GPT-4, which is supposed to come out in 2023. But the thing that they've done better than anybody else was their amount of of uh, of points, 175 billion points, the point cloud to, to create GPT-3. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Uh, next question. It looks like maybe our last one, Douglas Carmichael says, do you think we'll ever see the chat GPT technology productized into a self-hostable slash corporate hostable product for personal and institutional use? Right, go ahead, John. Yeah, so so I read the prices on, and that's for embedded in product. And so um, think about you know Keenan's doing this training platform. He could embed, he could embed Dolly, and he can embed the ChatGPT into creating his content for him, which would be super easy. So a lot of the products that you're going to see are going to be able to embed this power into their products, and then pay you know pennies on the dollar to access the AI. Next question. And I was wrong about that. We have more. So James Babbitt, which chat GPT app do you use or do you use chat GPT in a browser? I'm using it in a browser. I didn't know it was used in any app yet. I think we're going to see it roll out, as John said, into many apps um, in the not, not too distant future. Uh, next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama says, how to get started with chat GPT? What would you advise? Uh, get in there, sign in and try to use it. Um, be patient. It, it's slow right now. And it's, but slow is better than breaking. I think it's important to use it because I think it's important to understand it because you're going to have to, you'll start to see where, oh, this isn't right or that. You, you know, I think that that is the, the, the most useful thing. I think that the reason that, you know, I look through a, um, a filter of the press, for instance, or I look at the filter of what I'm looking at because I've worked in it. You know, I've worked in all of those things and I, and I listen to it through a filter of, I know what the limitations are of what I'm reading or what I'm looking at. I know what that that what 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 what's going to work and not work. And so getting into something and using it means that you start to learn where the where the edges are. Especially the most powerful thing to do with ChatGPT is search about things. What I learned really quickly was search about things that you already know. 
things that you are already an expert or you think you're an expert at, search at it and you'll see exactly what I was talking about here. You'll see things that are off, you know, and and you will, um, but then you kind of start to triangulate, oh, it's good at some things, but it's not good at the at certain details. And that helps guide you to looking at everything else, you know, through that that lens. Go ahead, Mitchell. I would advise being very polite because you never know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Sky. Well, and critical thinking is is what you're saying, Alex. And I'm I'm afraid that's been bred out of a lot of people because we've been Pavlovian taught you know, when the bell rings, we're supposed to go buy something. So that's a challenge for people that don't know how to critical think. And critic, well, and I think we, to your point, when you say, when the, a previous question of who's going to stick around, who's going to still be, um, still be employed, still be working, still be productive in the future, it's people who can critically think. That may be the only thing that you need <laughs> to be able to critically break things yeah, down. Yeah, because the tools are going to do all the, uh, the hard heavy It'll do all the you. stuff, yeah, but you yeah. still have to figure it out. Yeah, yep. yeah go Ask ahead. Better questions. Uh, last question. Last one, Douglas Carmichael. They mentioned that the chat GPT model runs on GPUs in the cloud. Why are they using GPUs when there are no graphics being generated? Um, because those are the fastest processors and they can do the most parallel processing at the same time. I mean, they uh, the vast majority of GPUs at this point are no longer processing graphics. You know, they're making Bitcoin, they're making Ethereum, they're making, you know, it's just that they can run massive parallel processes because that's what they needed for graphics. But it turns out it's really applicable to many things, science, um, you know, and, and all kinds of other generative, generative um, technologies. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Alex covered it. It's massive uh, parallel cores. And, you know, your typical uh, NVIDIA has, you know, four to 7,000 cores that all can operate in parallel. So it can handle uh, the neural network, the ability to branch and relate to different things at different times. And uh, just as we, as, we, as we close up, I'm just going to shift to mid-journey for just a second because you just have to see these images, that just two images that we created last night. Um, one is, this is the Millennium Falcon in the style of Ghostbusters. Um, a little bit of the Ghostbuster uh, thing. A little over-adorned. I like it. I love it. I was like, I so want to build that 3D model. The like Millennium a, Slimer. The, yeah. yeah, exactly. It was just really good. And then this was the, um, so this is Princess Leia as a robot in the style of Rembrandt. No, I thought it, it would just, that's brilliant. <laughs> I was just like, it's like, it's a medieval robot that is Princess Leia. Like it was, I was just like, ah, you know, anyway, sorry. I just really, we, we had Take, a. Takes Team Pump to a whole new level. We're, we've already started designing a bar that just has um, has prompts where you can sit around the bar drinking beer, doing doing uh, mid journey requests, and then and then it gets voted up and put on the walls. Like whatever the ones of the of the people who who regularly go to the bar can just vote on things. Like they just get it on their phone and go, well, what do you think of this? And you just give a thumbs up, thumbs down. Then the best ones all end up on the walls of the of the bar. I'm just saying you're gonna <laughs> have problems really hiring wait staff if they have to wear that as an outfit. It's just a picture. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, um, uh, a couple a couple things, of course, tomorrow is at the education uh, hour, and we're going to be evaluating educational software. So uh, stay tuned for that. We don't have a great gray matter uh, this week. Um, uh, Michael is in Hawaii. <laughs> so but we will have we will be resuming uh, gray matter next week on Friday. So stay tuned for that. Um, and uh, a note that um, we're having a, a, a meeting in after hours for panelists, uh, current and future panelists. If you're interested in being a panelist or if you're current panelist, we'll talk about being a panelist next Thursday. Of course, all of these come out in the email that goes out in the morning. Um, and a correction that the Q&A will be available for every Kilo show segment uh, via McConnell. So there'll still be questions. It just won't be 
open questions will be questions about what we're talking about, which is a different part of it. But it won't be the normal uh, general questions, but it will be um, Q&A uh, during, during the Kila show. And questions and comments and all those other things as well. Um, 98,000 miles. We almost went to 1K today. Um, uh, 98,000 miles, 159,000 kilometers. That is um, uh, 894 million bananas for scale. So um, just remember that. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, it's great. Thank you to all the producers for all the great questions. It's just great to have this conversation. I, it, what's funny is I'm now getting to a point where I just want to, when I'm thinking about something, I really want it to be a second hour so that we can all just sit there. And, and I like when we bring guests in, but I also have learned that I really want to mix it up where we're doing these kind of open discussions where we just think about it. And people are making comments and asking questions and we're answering them, but we're also just talking about them and it lets us all think about it. But I find this to be one of my my favorite places to think about something. Like I thought that yesterday's session was one of the best ones we've had, you know, the FR7. And that's like, I hope we can do that once or twice a week somewhere in the future or maybe every day. But hey, we've got something new. A couple of us have it. We've played with it. We're going to all talk about it. We're going to ask them questions. We're going to do all these other things. And so, um, and, and uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, and we'll see. We'll get maybe a second hour about Mitchell's uh, touchscreen pie, you know, maybe, not, maybe, maybe a small lab. Anyway, but, um, but yes. <laughs> so, um, so we will, uh, but but I think it's been great and and I, just great questions to really drive that conversation. What I love about Office Hours is just such a thoughtful set of viewer, you know, you know, all the producers, the the panelists, everyone is just, you know, really thoughtful about it. And that's the number one response that I get from people when they come to Office Hours as a guest. I'm like, wow, that was a lot of good questions. <laughs> like, like I'm not used to having so many good questions in one place. So anyway, so great work by the producers, um, great work by the panelists. It's always great to see. We had a great panel today. Um, we've, we've had a good couple of weeks of just great panels, one after the other. Um, so, uh, so anyway, really, really great to see all of you here. Um, even some folks that aren't here all the time. So it's, it's really good to have you, uh, have you joining us. So please join more often. And, uh, thanks to the incredible crew on the back end. We're really excited. Um, the hardware came in yesterday. It's already been locked into the system. We're not, we haven't started wiring it. I know that Josh is worried. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, let's not change anything until Monday. Um, so uh, right after Monday, so we're putting in um, a, we, we have six FSHDRs that just got added to the system. And then we have one 40 by 40, new 40 by 40 router, which will be filled up by those FSHDRs. And so that's going to let us really right after the Kilo show on Monday, uh, Kevin will start to wire that in. And um, that's going to allow us to color correct every single panelist individually. So we can literally sit there and dial in, oh, it'd be good if they're a little brighter, I'll push this a little bit here, there. Obviously, it, the best thing is to have them get as close as uh, as possible, but we'll be able to tweak it for specifically for HDR. I'd like um, a little nip under the chin. I yeah, have a little exactly. too much wobble there. <laughs> and then we're also putting in all the tools that we need so that we can start doing, uh, we're going to start using Zoom ISO audio next week, um, right after the Right after the Kilo show, we're not going to do it during the Kilo show. <laughs> we're going to start by the end of next week. We should be using Zoom ISO audio, and we'll be um, and we'll be able to individually sync the audio for every panelist as well. And we're That'll start be to, nice. Yeah, so it's going to be um, so that the I think that we're going to be able to really take this to an entirely new level over the next two or three weeks. We've been kind of waiting for a lot of these pieces to come in and, and get worked out. And, and there's been an incredible amount of work in the coding, um, in Isadora, um, you know, so on and so forth. And we'll give you, a, once we get through a couple of these things, we'll do another update session to kind of give you a sense of, uh, of what, um, 
what we have there. So stay tuned for that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Minutes. What? Sky, I just heard you say, but it doesn't know how to draw hands. Awesome. All those humans. Push, pushing the pushing the buttons. It's a heavy box. It was a very expensive box at the time. Is that the touch pie? Oh, that's the box you were showing. I didn't recognize it. I was trying to talk at the same time. I can't wait to see it. If you touch pie, you get sticky fingers. Exactly. All right. Love the banter. Yes. Gotta go find my son's Christmas present now. 